0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is exciting today. This is really, really, really exciting. My voice sounds even worse than it has in the past. It's not your imagination. I have something that's going around and I don't know the name of it, but Mm. I will try to not put you to sleep. So firstly, I want to thank all of you again. I know it's a, a broken record, but I can't really thank you enough for all the emails, all the text, all the Facebook messages, the tweets, the FedEx packages that you guys send me. I have been heckled by my own devices of telling you what to do. I just looked through a Facebook account and for some reason something was locked and and not working properly and I found messages from 2013 when I started on and just incredible messages of people telling me how this podcast has helped them. That's that's why I do it. I love this. This is one of my favorite things to do in the world. And it's compounded by the guest that I have today, Ileana Douglas, who I've always had this wonderful, wonderful feeling about from the moment that I met her. And it's an odd thing. And I don't even know what it is because I think it's the fact that When you notice somebody that's so authentic and so original and so unique, not just in the way they talk to you and the way their voice is. You know, remember that show, Name That Tune, where you you could literally just name a tune in one note or two notes or seven notes or whatever. When Ileana Douglas talks, you can name her voice in literally one note, (laughs) And I think that's important and authentic for any comedy voice and I call her a comedy voice and she might say, well, you know, I am not just comedy, I'm drama, I do everything. Remember that, Barry. But in my mind, whenever somebody starts off their career as a stand-up comedian in a New York comedy club, I forever think of them like Michael Keaton as somebody whose roots are blessed and rooted in comedy. And so, when I think of her voice and any comics voice, if you think about it, anybody who's worth anything in comedy, you can recognize their voice in seconds. And if you can't recognize their voice in seconds, then chances are they will never fucking make it as a stand up comedian. And that's just the way it is, you know, from Ray Romano's voice to Jerry Seinfeld's voice, I mean, to Chris Rock's voice. Uh, to my guest Ileana Douglas's voice and even though she's not doing stand-up comedy again I look at that base but I think about the journey of somebody who took that trek and how fate is very strange and how our paths crossed chances are she started doing some stand-up comedy when I was in New York City but I never saw her there and I don't remember ever seeing her there and I was entrenched in that Scene As a matter of fact, Stand Up New York is a very, very fascinating memory for me as it is for her because that's where she started doing (laughs) her shows and that the owner, Carrie Hoffman, you talk about risk and you talk about things that people do in their lives. I'm just going to talk a second about Carrie Hoffman, the original owner of Stand Up New York. He cobbled together any money he had because he was a journeyman actor and actress He had tried putting on off-Broadway shows, and he did everything he could with his vision of setting up this comedy club on the Upper West Side in New York City on 70, I'm going to say 76th or 75th Street and Broadway, and he came to Boston to do a showcase with me. I put on 17 acts for him, and unbelievably, I had one of the first acts that worked at his club that first week that Rosie O'Donnell worked and Mario Cantone and a college comedian named Tim Satimi. And the guy I put in there was a late Rich Seitzler, a really great comedian. But Carrie always took risks. And recently, unbelievably, you talk about you starting as a stand-up and moving on through these things, Carrie Hoffman found out that his real talent, believe it or not, of all things was singing Frank Sinatra songs mm-hmm. and now he is touring the country in theaters all over the world as Frank Sinatra doing a Frank Sinatra show and so again I look at him and 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 at at a certain point of his life you know most people say I can't change I can't take the risk I can't do that and you know fate has a way of changing things For Ileana Douglas, the crisscross for me and the fate that happened with me was I was fortunate enough to work with Jay Moore at a time when people wanted him to do television. And he didn't want to do television because he was getting offered a lot of movies, one of which uh, he did uh, right after Jerry Maguire that Ileana Douglas starred in Picture Perfect with Jennifer Aniston and Ileana. And so I knew her. Just of being on the set, but I didn't really, you know. When I was on a set early on, I wasn't the kind of guy who was like trying, God, I, gotta, I gotta meet her," or whatever. <laughs> I would just stand in the back, and I didn't really say anything to her, and I just watched her from afar. And I was just blown away by the authentic voice, the authentic acting skill that she had, and an authentic look that no one had in the world. Just an unbelievable, unique person, like a, a triple threat, uh, shall I say? So, when it came time to action, and Jay going back and forth with Joel Silver and Chris Thompson, the executive producer and writer and creator, of uh, whether he was going to do it or not, and he finally agreed and got invested to do it. At that time, or right before we came on, there was another actress that was very hot, probably the hottest she ever was, which was uh, Vivica Fox or Vivica A. Fox. And Vivica had been doing a lot of movies like Jay, but more successfully, I believe, in the not only in the African American market, but crossed over into all different genres. And sometimes what's weird is that you're working on a project and somebody has a first choice for something, and then it doesn't always work out that way and you think to yourself, Oh boy, this is bad. We didn't get our first choice. So before we came on, what well, we'd found out that there were rumblings that Vivica Fox was the person that was offered this particular role that Ileana Douglas was up for. But as fate would have it, uh, in the past, if I'm not mistaken, and Ileana will elaborate on this later, she had been at certain uh, events with Chris Thompson. You know, you're, you, sometimes you're at events and if you're an actor or an actress, or I don't care what profession you're in, I don't care if you're in the service industry, you show up You go to places, you go to events that involve the people that are in your profession because you never know what's gonna happen. Neil Brennan once said to me on this podcast, he said, every single thing that's ever happened to me that's brought me success happened from hanging around a comedy club. But what he's essentially saying is show up, hang around, go to events. And when you know it, Ileana Douglas, I believe, is taking some kind of a shuttle from some award show and she's just sitting there, and there's Chris Thompson. And they start talking, whatever, and and they meet. They have a dialogue, and and entrenched in his brain from the moments that she spent with him, which if you were to spend any moments with Leanna Douglas, it would allow you the opportunity to fantasize about moving in with her because that's the kind of person she is and she makes you feel. You immediately feel in your heart. Like, I always felt it's a horrible thing to say because I'll have to go to human resources I'm not crying right now I'm just okay. is that there's certain women that you need and you just think to yourself god I wonder what that would be like <laughs> I wonder what that would be like if I was in that person's life if I was a part of that world if I was there with her and so anyway to make a long story short Vivica Fox didn't happen they couldn't make the deal they couldn't figure it out and the vision that Chris Thompson had in his mind was the woman he met or at least spent significant time with on a shuttle bus. And he was so taken with her, he didn't ask her to test for the role. He didn't ask her to come in for a chemistry read in lieu of a test. He just said, you know, I want you and I want you to do this. And there was a meeting at a hotel with Flowers (laughs) and Chris Thompson and Jay uh, sitting down and and, and putting on the full court press to, to let her know that they wanted her, and she accepted. And to me, the show Action, what we're talking about now, is one of the shows that is well ahead of its time. And it only did 13 episodes on Fox, but it's the kind of show that would hold up today. And I think the lesson here is a very simple lesson in that fate can be a disastrous thing, but it can be a wonderful thing. And somebody's loss or something that somebody passes on can be somebody's success. But if you don't show up, if you don't hang out, if you're not around the people in your industry that make a difference, you're cutting your percentages of success way down. So get out there, meet people, don't be an asshole, and show the best side of yourself. And hopefully that side will be the one that will get you where you want to go. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it, because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with barricades to see me. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
2: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? How about
0: the air? People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If
1: you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew-white manager like Barry Katz.
0: <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses I'm Undeniable. Yeah. Creating holy shit moments.
1: I love this man! Barry Katz. Back in the house! 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 Let's
0: do this! welcome back to another episode of industry standard with me barry katz i am going to give iliana douglas the proper introduction and this could take so, a while ladies uh-oh. and gentlemen so we should all lie down and we'll do that while Ileana pulls the so, pubic hair off the no, mic guard there so that's this
3: is, i guess i'm norman lear's gray
0: hair. norman lear's gray hair is on, it's on there. my mic that's you are okay. you are uh, yes that's, that's right norman lear that's uh, i
3: know i'm very impressed i love i love oh,
0: one of the he's amazing you know, I'm just as happy right now.
3: With me? Yes. Okay, good. Really? I'll try to be a sage and give you what I mean, nobody can give you what Norman Lear has created for don't the world.
0: Downplay you. You're 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 an old soul. You're gonna have yes. it all.
3: He's ninety three. I still I've got some time to create something.
0: I don't have as much time as you know. <laughs> Ileana Douglas is an award winning film and television actress, writer, director and producer. She began her career as a stand-up comedian-sketch performer at Stand-Up New York and the Manhattan Punchline. While working for a New York film publicist, she was asked to dub screams and dialogue for Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. This led to a long collaboration with Scorsese, who cast Ilian in his films New York Stories, Goodfellas, and Cape Fear. She solidified her film acting career with performance in a string of critical and commercial successes, including Alive, which I saw on a plane. Nice. Uh, Not good.
3: That should be illegal.
0: (laughs) To Die For, Picture Perfect, Message in a Bottle, love that movie, Stir of Echoes, and Ghost World. In 1999, she starred in the critically acclaimed TV show... Action that is near and dear to our heart. Critically acclaimed, by the way, definition of that, canceled. <laughs> and appeared in numerous television shows, including Larry Sanders, Frasier, Drew Carey, Law & Order SVU. I always want to say SUV. Grey's Anatomy, Drop Dead Diva, Entourage, and Ugly Betty. She earned an Emmy nomination for her portrayal of Angela on the HBO series Six Feet Under, which was one of my favorite series. Uh, Ileana's web series, Easy to Assemble, has been downloaded over, get this everybody, 40 million times and has been called the most successful branded show of all time by Adweek. It features comedic actors like Jeff Goldblum, Jane Lynch, Sherry O'Terry, Fred Willard, and Tom Arnold. It's won six, counted, six Webby Awards for the best performance, best writing, and best branded series. Ileana has also developed, produced, and directed for film and television. Her first directorial effort, The Perfect Woman, won Best Short at Aspen Shorts Festival and was sold to Miramax. She wrote and directed the documentary Everybody Just Stay Calm for IFC, and she served as the executive producer for the flick Shea Upshaw. And the Sarah Jessica Parker comedy film, Life Without Dick. No comment. (laughs) She is co-producer of the upcoming web series, The Skinny, and Ileana has a recurring role on the hit NBC show, Welcome to Sweden, produced by Amy Poehler, now in its second season. She's a regular host and interviewer now on Turner Classic Movies, and her first book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, A Life Inside and Outside Movies, will be out later this year. Please welcome my guest today, the wonderful, the magnificent, Ileana Douglas. Thank
3: you. Pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Jesus. And I'm imagining us living together. Thinking what that I was like, what would I cook him for dinner? I, would I be his muse? <laughs> I've been so many muses in my life. You,
0: how, how many muses have you been?
3: Oh my God, we don't have, that's a different, that'd be a different, my next book will be the, uh, I've been amused too many, too many, many directors, and I just find myself, as we're going to talk about in the book, I have just found myself always just behind the scenes at the right place, at the right time, being the confidant of a director, writer, producer, actress, sometimes I've just through no f- just sitting there i don't know i just end up being in the mix of things and uh, how
0: many men have you been the opposite to
3: where they have been the muse to me yeah oh yeah many many i mean but i'm like i fall in love at the drop of a hat i'm like you know somebody's nice to me i'm like i think i'm in love with you <laughs> <laughs> is that?
0: That's the story of my is whole that, life. I is think. it
3: needy? Does it make me needy? Because I love you right now. No, I do the same thing. I'm projecting. I before I even work with someone, I'm all, I'm like they're probably gonna, you know, we'll probably get married or we'll be on a show together. I mean, I'm always imagining things that that are don't happen. Sometimes they do happen though, but you know, most of the time they don't.
0: But don't you have the ability to make everything happen that you want to make happen?
3: I think so in so in some ways, yes, if you don't get too uh too delusional, <laughs> you have to know when to when to stop. But yes, I do feel as if you can make I've made everything happen uh, that I want to happen. I think. I mean, obviously there's a hundred more things that i that are on my bucket list. but so far, I can look back. And, you know, when my head hits the pillow at night, I—I, which to me is the greatest, that's nirvana, is that, you know, I have not reached my full potential, but I could fall asleep and say that I'm happy with what I've accomplished. And I think that that, to me, is the key to, to everything. Then you can have some real, you know, real growth.
0: Now, you said to me one time mm-hmm. that really struck me because you talk about fate. Yes. You told me that you and Allison and Janney started around the same time. We're very close. Yes. And there were roles that were being decided and people were choosing whether she should go on or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she went on a little show called The West Wing, I believe.
3: Oh, no. This, this is better than that. Oh, no, no, no. I was in, I had done this uh, movie, uh, Grace of My Heart, and... And then I was, I had done this, which I talk about in this crazy chapter because you never know what's going to make you successful. But I had done this mini series that did really well and got a big TV deal with CBS and went out to. LA and I had a house the hot tub and Allison Janney who'd been a couple years ahead of me she was really good friends with my roommate at at the time who's now become a very successful writer named Stephen Rogers but we were all in the same circle but I was like I'd made it I was like out in Hollywood she was like the struggling actress who comes out to test for things and I had a big TV deal so she's coming she comes out to my house we're in like this little you know hot tub and she was going to be auditioning for west wing and i was gonna be in action so i was like i don't know about west wing you know aaron sorkin a few good men i mean i don't even think it had been made a movie it was still like a play but i was in action i was like oh i mean you know clear dust off my shelf for all the emmys i'm gonna win this this show is i mean i really thought that action was gonna be you know here for 10 years
0: so did the press i mean yes. I, i'd never seen any show get more press in my entire life it we was did insane not. we
3: did not get any more press and so like it was it was it was interesting so you know then that was west wing and then action was canceled you know 13 shows in and i was absolutely shocked because we there were so many things that we innovated. It was the first time a film, and I'm going to be general here because yes, maybe there's exceptions, but to my recollection, it was one of the first times, if not the first time, that a film director, Ted Demi, did a pilot, did a TV pilot.
0: The, the late one. Ted Demi. Yeah,
3: that was unheard of. A movie star like Keanu Reeves being on our television show, unheard of. Single camera comedy, unheard of. Swearing unheard of the in in you know innovation which now everybody does of, of bleeping
0: and back then at fox the head of standards and practices uh-huh. there was so much swearing in the first scene where i don't want to spoil it for you if you were going to buy it or haven't seen it but i, I guess i have to jay pulls into a lot and he knocks over a parking <laughs> stanchion that says employee of the month and he starts walking in on his phone in his armani suit and a uh, chef Runs after him and says, "Hey, uh, 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 Mr. Dragon, I'm, that's that's my uh, that's my parking space. Mm-hmm. I'm the I'm, I'm the employee of the month." And Jay goes on like a one minute rant saying that I've made a billion dollars <laughs> for this company. Okay, I don't give a fuck who you are or what you're doing, but at this moment you might be the employee of the fucking month, but I am the employee of the fucking century. And what they had to do because there was so many fucks, Ted Demi did this innovative thing as a director. And Ileana, you've directed many things where. He did a circular oh. shot, so it kept rotating around yeah. Jay. And every time he'd swear, it would be behind his head, and then back, so they could bleep it like that. But there were still were points where he had to swear, and they would fuzz out his mouth yeah. because back then you weren't allowed to have it for long like that.
3: Right then, we were all flown on a first premiere for a television show ever, unheard of. A television show? They had a movie premiere, you know, flown to New York. Uh, cover shoots for TV Guide, you know, it was, and as I write in that thing, it was like, you know, uh, breaks the rules, like, you know, breaking a, like a chicken, like a cook breaks eggs. I mean, you know, every like great pull quote and then it's gone. You
0: know, And what was weird about the show Action, for those of you who don't know, is that people didn't come to the first episode. I think 8 million people came to watch the first episode with all that promotion, all the great commercials, all the great press all over the place, and only 8 million people came. Now, I know today if 8 million came, people would be doing handstands down Mm. the, but it was a different time. To this day, I don't think anyone understands why no one even... Normally when people, they come in droves, they sample it, and if they hate it, they don't come again, and then it's canceled. But this one... They just never came. And so for the whole series, the the ratings didn't necessarily vary that much. It's just that it was like 8 million, 7 million, 6, you know, 8 again, whatever. It would just mm-hmm. stay the same, and it wasn't moving upwards. And that's why we got our head handed to us, and I don't know well, why that was.
3: I mean, again, that's the mystery uh, 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 that all of us that were a part of it is that you see shows today... That, we're obvi- that obviously we're doing much worse and that they're given a chance and they have a loyal following. I mean, I've never been part of a show. It's, you know, it's 20 years later, people are like, oh, what? why did action get canceled, you know? And, uh, you know, so that's uh, staying power. And I just finished working with uh, George Lopez. I'm doing his pilot, Are You George Lopez? For, oh, for TV Land.
0: Fantastic. Extremely
3: talented.
0: Man. very, very talented. I always found George to be that kind of guy that, as a stand-up, that, that was incredible. Like when you f- would first see George Lopez perform, he'd walk into a comedy club. And there are very few comedians like this where they walk on stage, and within 30 seconds, the crowd is going fucking crazy, applauding, standing, high-fiving. And this is no disrespect to George Lopez I don't even believe that he understands <laughs> what the fuck is happening. He has a command over his audience in a dramatic way, like Hitler had a command over the Third Reich. I mean, it's yes. like unbelievable. And there's very few comedians mm-hmm. who have that and, and uh, that power. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's one of them. And he happens to be a great actor uh, and and a really, really powerful force. You mm-hmm. sit next to George Lopez and it's like... You are either in his world or you don't exist. It's just mm-hmm. like it's a it's a really great thing. But you're the kind of person whose energy I'm sure went toe to toe with oh, his.
3: I loved working with him and remind, it's reminded reminding me a little bit again. Like I've worked. It's been weird. I've worked with a lot of comedians. I mean, and just worked with Adam Carolla and his mm-hmm. movie and Jay and
0: Road Hard. Oh uh, my God, Yeah.
3: Drew Carey, I mean, you know, on and on and on, and so it's. I love working with comedians. I'm fascinated by them, and, and and you know, I felt like we were the world's most unlikely. I play as publicist in the, in the show, the world's most unlikely showbiz couple, and I just was love at first sight. So talented, I really enjoyed working on the show, and we shall see what happens with it.
0: This is what's amazing about uh, George is that, and if you have a show where you're the first guy on the call sheet Mm -hmm. and it fails and you can get another show on the air (laughs) the next year where you have the first name on the call sheet Uh that's like that never happens ask louis ck yes okay lucky louis name on the show first on the call sheet five years until the next show yeah it just doesn't happen it's very difficult but george That shows you the power that he has.
3: Yes. He's got a great, great fan base, great audience.
0: So, Ileana, what I like to do is I like to go way, way back.
3: Okay, let's go back. Let's do it. Now,
0: before I I go way, way back, I want to make sure. Yeah? I want to hear how you pronounce your first name.
3: Uh, Ileana.
0: See? There you go. Ileana. You got the ah in there which means classy (laughs) you take us way back to where you grew up your family life what it was like what kind of socio-economical dynamic your family the whole deal and then what was your first inspiration to wanting to be in show business
3: well my um the name of my book is called i blame dennis hopper and because my parents saw the movie easy rider and made a life decision to uh, raise us as dirty hippies. And I say that lovingly because it all turned out all right. But um, wait, but,
0: and so how were you being raised up to the point they saw that movie? And how old were you when they made the decision? Well, to I was
3: very young. So again, I. But basically, you know, my knowledge is, you know, we were. I would say that we were upper probably upper middle class when we you know moved to a sort of a wealthy upscale community in in uh, Connecticut and um and my mom didn't work she was a housewife and had you know was in the garden club and all these kind of preppy things and then as, as I write about in the book I didn't really understand what was happening cuz I was very young but it was like you know slowly and surely there was like less and less food less and less people Uh, and then my, there, my father started a commune on our property, not like a cult commune, but like with, you know, hippies and free love and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of people like living with us a band you know that kind of thing so it was like at first it all seemed very fun and uh groovy and everything but as I as I grew up I realized that the lifestyle in order to have that hippie lifestyle that's where all the kind of the money went because none of the hippies worked and so eventually you know my mom got a teaching job to sort of support us. And then eventually the Lord
0: knows a lot of teaching jobs can support a house in Connecticut in another middle-class neighborhood.
3: Well, that's, we had a lot of help also from my grandparents, but the, uh, but so I, my first introduction, you know, was just being like a, a hippie kid. And then as I, as I got older, I made you know, I started getting, uh, you know, sent to stay with my grandparents my Italian grandparents were very blue-collar Italian immigrants, you know.
0: So your parents were originally from Italy.
3: My mom's parents.
0: And your dad's?
3: My dad, well, my my father's uh, dad was Melvin Douglas, the actor Melvin Douglas. And uh, so he was also, you know, was movie star, kind of grew up in California, grew up a movie star's existence. And then maybe... Uh, and this is my opinion I can't speak for him but you know kind of went against that by you know going maybe being going more into the hippie lifestyle and but so when we would go visit them you know nice apartment on the Upper West Side and maids and servants and and then that combined with visiting my Italian grandparents who you know always there was like two channels in their house, Channel Five and Channel Eleven. Like that was it. You know they were like so. I thought I thought TV was like Groucho Marks and The Untouchables <laughs> and uh, you know like I, Wild Wild West. Like I I lived in black and white. I thought that so that was my idea of what you know, glamorous show business was like. And again, there was also there was always like plenty of money and food. And then so when I would go this, that life juxtaposed with going home with the hippie environment where there wasn't a lot of food and also the stifling environment of Connecticut, uh, I think is, you know, made me lean towards wanting to be wanting to be in show business, wanting to be like my grandfather you know and they were encouraging me uh i i think they thought i was funny and entertaining you know which was something that in my own family nobody nobody ever thought i was like funny or interesting
0: so what's your first entrance into the world
3: it was basically it, it it's i was um i saw i always my real entrance into show business was part of a program i saw I saw an article in the newspaper. It was like a week-old newspaper that was uh, for something called the Hartford Stage Company Youth Theater. And you had to be... It was supposed to be for poor black kids in the inner city. And I say that, and it was funny because we were writing in the book, and they were like, you can't say inner city anymore. I was like, well, that's what it says (laughs) in the article. We have the actual... Can we just show the... art?" I'm trying... I'm not being... You know, it's like we're so PC. I'm like, it was called the Inner City. Is that okay? Like they it was like they lived in the projects. Like that's what they call. It. It's in the article. So I saw this thing and they were doing musicals and it's I was like, I've got to be in this program. I somehow need to be in this program. And so basically I just lied. I found somebody of family that lived in the Inner City in Hartford and I just pretended that that was my address and had the application sent there and sent back from there and auditioned for, uh, you know, for this uh, theater company. Now,
0: you'd never auditioned for anything before? No. Okay, so in your audition, did it involve singing, dancing, and acting?
3: It did. It was one of the most I write about it in my book because to this day, it just must have been one of those moments where time stood still and said, you know what, will just let her have it the uh no because i had it's so pathetic i knew so little about show business that i had learned i was obsessed with liza minnelli and i wanted to be like liza minnelli and i had learned this completely inappropriate i had two movies that i was obsessed with new york i was watching new york new york and Cabaret over and over again. And I was debating between whether I would do a song, both completely inappropriate, you know, for a 15 year old, either the man I love, or maybe this time, but I decided on maybe this time, because I figured that would, you know, get me in this company. So I learned it off of the record. They said, please bring sheet music, which I did. And I get there, I, I barely make a through the dance, everyone is so much better than me. And a miracle, one of the dancers, one of the black dancers, just took pity on me. I have no idea why, like to this day. wonderful guy named Marcus just literally took me aside and taught me the dance there is no reason for this except that it makes like a really good story and it's true Uh, because I would have been out like that was it dancing was first he took me aside he taught me the dance I made it through the first round the second round was the was the singing so then I go in I go to sing my song maybe this time I'm start to sing the guy the piano player is and I and I don't know this, but apparently, the 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 sheet music is in a different key than what I learned on the record. So I've learned it in a completely different key, and the piano player's looking at me, and he's like bum 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 bum, you know, looking at him. I'm like, what are you, why are you screwing me up? I'm trying to sing here, and I'm keep trying to sing, and he finally stops. And there was like again this long table, ten people. I am like bombing it is like it's, it's like the
0: table in flash dance
3: totally it is like do or die moment The guy says you're singing in the wrong key and i snap back i'm singing in the right key the key of liza you're in the wrong key and <laughs> the whole table just like laughed but and then i was like okay Get through that. I was laughing, laughing, and it was like, and I saw the director, this guy Clay, Clay Stevenson, may rest in peace. He he was like, all right, the kid's got, she's got moxie, she's got moxie, but they were like, what are we gonna do now? Second miracle of the story. I do not know what they saw in me because I was like on the outside, I was brazen, but on the inside, I was like, this is. <laughs> this is over and like any minute is going to be over and the one musical director said he told the piano guy to get up and he and he said I'll 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 sing with you and then he said just start singing and I started to sing and then he said you're in C I'm going to play this in C and he played the song again it was like the stress and the emotion and I got to be in this song. And I was like a 15-year-old, like, doing my best. Like, it's got to happen. By the end of the song, it was like the whole table was, like, literally on their feet. It was like a moment of just going from utter failure, this is over, Moxie. She pulled herself up by her bootstraps. She got it through. And it was like, I... You know, it was like being shot out of a cannon. I got out of the audition, and this wonderful guy, Marcus. He got. I was just like, I ah, 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 ah. like. I don't even know what happened in there, and he was so is like his face just smiling. And he's like, you're gonna be in the company, and I was in the company. I was only like five white people. Only about five of us made it in the company.
0: Did he make it in?
3: He made it in. He was like, he was like one of the best. We be, we be just became like joined at the hip. We were like, and I write about this in my book because he was the best dancer in the company. You know, unbelievable, and we, we, we had to. You know, we were there five days a week. We got paid. We worked in all aspects of the theater. And I think it it was the second year of the program. He was like, literally, he came in 10 minutes late and the choreographer looked at him and he said, you're fired. Go get your stuff. You're done. And it was like, we just all like stopped. And he goes, no, I'm serious. Turn around. You're done.
0: Just for one late.
3: One time being late and was it, that
0: a rule that they told everybody
3: yeah they they took things seriously i mean there was another time it may have been the first year second year something like that i remember there was a i know it now i know that step now man but there was a choreography step and just for some reason i was like i i just i couldn't get it and it was it was also happened to be my birthday and and the guy was like he sent everyone away for lunch he's like again again Again, I was like doing this step, you know, like uh, throughout the entire lunch period, and in, in my head I was like, "It's my birthday! What, why were the pigs so mean to me?" And I was just like, "You better get this step right, or you're gonna get fired." But you know, everything I learned about like being professional and came from those days. And what I lucked out with that theater company is that there was a the director of the theater at the time was a guy named mark lamos now can i just
0: interject for a second because the lesson that you played here and you talked about is so important and i think our audience it's important for them to know this sometimes if you are somebody out there who's incredibly talented Mm -hmm. in whatever profession you're in there's a sense of entitlement there's a sense like you're teflon you no matter what happens no one will ever take you out And the example that you mentioned for this company of that guy who was clearly the best guy in the company is the same example that I remember one time when I was at Saturday Night Live and watching these shows and watching Norm MacDonald just completely, every weekend update, just take over the show or do Burt Reynolds and just Mm -hmm. explode. And he became like the star of the show. And I remember I went on vacation and I came back to Saturday Night Live the next week after vacation, and Colin Quinn was in his chair, and Norm MacDonald was nowhere to be found. Hmm. And Lauren Michaels was strong enough and smart enough to know that there was no one person that was greater than the group of people. And maybe in his mind he felt that Norm had a sense of entitlement about him the way he walked through the hallways mm-hmm. that maybe others didn't have. And I don't know if that was the case of this guy, but the fact is, is that if you're out there, know in any job you have, never show up late, always show up early, and always stay later.
3: Yeah, no, they were, you know, when we were kids. Remember, we weren't even grownups. We were like, you know, fifteen. It's like you're done. Get your stuff. You're done. Get out. Um, and they treated us, you know, they treated us like like grownups and we worked really hard we we worked in all capacities of behind the scenes and they put us and we also went on tour which was crazy and you were
0: about to talk about the director uh... uh
3: whose name was again i i mean you know we were terrified of him his name was clay and he's passed on but his name was clay stevenson and again the the company was like 90 percent african-american everybody was african-american um you know or hispanic and there were only about you know five white people in the company i was lucky enough to be in the company and the, all the you know all the musicals were it was you know interracial and they would so we became like kind of a little pr thing
0: but where's the company what you're you're putting up these plays where are you performing them where are you living during this time when you're 15 and oh doing... i
3: went to no i i had to go to hartford i went and
0: no i know like how do you you weren't living in hartford though
3: i know i i i did i went to it's all it's like a blackout i went and i found an apartment in the paper i mean your um,
0: parents were okay with you leaving the house and living in an apartment when you were 15
3: yes Apparently they were.
0: How did you afford the apartment when your parents were dirty hippies?
3: I I had the money, I you know, on my own. I was like very industrious. I got a, like a a job at a place called Well, first of all, we got paid to be in the Harvard. company. No, Stage I know.
0: But you you don't get paid in advance to get a first, last and security of a, an apartment. Well, I think
3: in those days, maybe possibly the two brothers I was living with, I don't want to say their names because I want to get sued, but you know, they were I lived in a room like next to the kitchen. It was like, you know, but I was in show business. I thought it was like, you know, I had no, you know, no concept that it was uh, horrendous and and scary i was you know now when
0: you're 15 and a girl in a company with all these guys with all this testosterone
3: and we were all the same age i was in it from till age 17 now
0: are they all trying to sleep with the girls in the cast
3: i did have my own apartment so i was considered to be like you know a prize (laughs) <laughs> because nobody, everybody lived, everybody was like, what does this kid have a, she's got her own place. So like the kids would all, a lot of kids would congregate in my, and I didn't have an apartment. Remember these two guys on the apartment. I had a room off of the kitchen. So, and a, and a, you know, a little back. I
0: have a room here off of the kitchen. So it's I had good. a
3: fire escape and a room off the kitchen. But uh, the kid, a lot of the kids would come over uh, to my, you know, to my pad. Well, I was always considered to be like a, a grown up. I mean, again, like when I was 15, I always looked like I was, you know, 21. Did you I was you a end good girl. I was, uh, I So
0: you were a good girl. You didn't sleep with any of the other cats. I members. was,
3: I don't know. I was, a, I was, a, I was, you know, I did not uh, play around. I was, uh, but we were all, you know, because we were kids. I don't think, I mean, again, things are probably different these days. I think we were a little, you know, kind of naive. I was in between the Hartford Stage Company and my grandfather was aware that i was doing all this theater in between those gigs i was getting other little jobs doing musical theater and in those jobs there was a lot of like you know there was a lot of grown-ups and there was so there was always like a lot of you know like groping and and that's getting back to the stand up too i mean again i was you know people were when i talk to young people these days and they're you know talking about people you know red flags and men doing inappropriate things and it was like you know in my day we just called that being an actress <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yes can you just put your hand over there thank you thank you um you know that was just like sort of a part of it I was like a part of being in show business was always always and I don't know if it was just me I assumed it was everybody but constantly having to deal with somebody like you know groping you or you know, I it just was ha- I just I thought that was actually part of being an adult. Am I wrong?
0: So the first time that was <laughs> just me. So the first, no, it might be just you and it might be just uh, as an adult. And I
3: every boss I ever had I jacked was... me up against the Coke machine and it was like, unless you put out, you're fired. That didn't happen to everybody?
0: No. Uh, so what what's <laughs> believe it. But what's the first time that happened and how did you handle it? What
3: well, the first time it happened, dude, I was in school. You know, again, like that's what makes me laugh. I mean,
0: but no one taught you how to handle it, so how'd you handle it?
3: I remember being in school and having a teacher, Oh, do you need to not ride home from school? Yes, I do. And then, like, why are we driving in the woods? This is not good. This is not my house, you know. And then it was like, if you say anything, I'll, you know. I'll just say you're a liar. I was like, drive me home. I'm terrified. I mean, I was like, I just thought that was being a kid. In my day, we considered that navigating in the world of grown-ups. And I remember going home and saying, Mom, Mr. So-and-so. And she was like, oh, cut it out. Like, you, <laughs> nobody believed you.
0: Because people get mad at me sometimes when I talk about that. You know, I think in these day and times, There's the same thing, only in a different way, because I think if you're a woman in this business and you want to be successful, I truly believe that you have to know how to navigate with men. Nothing's changed about men from when you were starting till now. Right. They still want to be powerful over girls that don't have that much power, Mm -hmm. and they still want to figure out how they can do it. If they don't want to sleep with the girls, they at least want to feel like they are viable and it could happen right and so as a woman you have to figure out how to navigate and 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 get them to feel like like I said before like walking away just saying I wonder what that would be like without having it and you know it's sort of like You figured out a way to navigate where you were like, okay, I don't care what you do, just could you just get back away from me? Go home, take your lotion, do whatever you want, think about me all you want, (laughs) but it's not going to happen right here.
3: Well, as I said, I would be, you know, in doing the musical theater. I again, I would find myself in, you know, you find yourself in scary positions, you know, where you're like,
0: like the black swan.
3: Well, I think that it was, uh, you know, I, I just figured, like, again, it was just assumed that if you were an actress, you were you were easy or something. But it did seem to, I f- it seemed to happen a lot to me, but I assumed, like I said, it happened to, to almost everybody.
0: But did you talk to your other actresses and see if it happened to them?
3: No, no. Uh, no, me and another, there was like me, I remember me and a girl that were friends. We were like, we were always, we couldn't figure out, like, why are we always, you know, say, and it would always come, like, I, I would think I was very naive or something. And we like, we want you to come to this exclusive party. And then I was in a, I had gotten in a musical company and me and this friend, we were all, we were so excited because like none of the leads got, you know, we were in the chorus. We got invited to this exclusive party. We were like, we thought we were, because we were the shit, you know. And then we get to this party, and it turned into an orgy. And we were literally, like, 15 years old. We were 15 years old at this party.
0: Now, for those of us out there in the audience... It's the only orgy I've ever been to. don't understand how something, quotation marks, end quotation mark, turns into an orgy. So how does a regular okay. party... What's the first sign... That I gotta be very, shit's going down. Okay,
3: i got to be very careful because they're going to slip and say names. We There's a guy in the company, Older Gentleman. He says we're having this when party. When you say
0: Older Gentleman, you're 15. How old is
3: he? <laughs> I would say he was in his 50s.
0: God, So I'm an Older Gentleman, maybe. He's was okay, in his gotta, 50s. Okay.
3: And uh, he comes backstage. Great show. The show is uh, Gypsy. Mm-hmm. and uh, I was, we was playing one of the Hollywood Blondes, and he comes back and he says to my friend and I, there's this party for one of the big uh, patrons of the theater and that we're invited to this party. We, we don't even drive. Like, her sister, we're so excited. Like, because we have in our head that, you know, we're Liza Minnelli. Like, this is going to lead to a part on Broadway. Like, that's all we were thinking about. We weren't thinking like, oh, we're going to a guy's house in the woods. We were thinking like, patron of the arts, he'll probably sponsor me, you know? Do
0: you realize the woods has a lot to do with your life?
3: Yes, as as depicted on the Larry Sanders show. Because I grew up in the, it was like, that's, it was always, like, because there were no The hotels. Woods
0: and Sexual Assault is, like, similar to uh, murder and dental records.
3: Well, there are no I, this was my joke on uh, when I did Larry Sanders. I said, do you know that I actually grew up in a place called Beaver Meadow? It was, <laughs> I said it was actually called—like, literally, people went to Beaver Meadow to make out. Like, that was a make-out place. I was like, have some beer, and then we'll go to Beaver Meadow. <laughs> her her friend—our friend—, the, our friend uh, Incidentally, you know, it's funny that this story was deemed too inappropriate to keep in my book. They were like, People are going to think this is child abuse. I was like, We called it being an actress. (laughs) It was like, It was, I I was being an actress anyway. We, uh, her friend drops me off at this big mansion, you know, and there are all these grown ups there, and we're the only two kids there, and we think it's pretty great. And then I see. And totally true story. That uh, somebody rolls up a hundred dollar bill and they start doing cocaine. The only reason I knew what cocaine was was because my grandparents had given me a subscription to New York Magazine, and I remember like an article like that's what they do. They roll up a hundred dollar bill and they snort this stuff, and it's cocaine. I mean, I don't even. I had no idea like what you did or what the effect of it was but I saw all these grown-ups they were doing cocaine and there's lots of drinking and everything and then the next thing is the guy says there's going to be a movie and again this is so old school like literally like like a movie like a projector the screen comes down and they show a porno like a porno movie and at that point my friend and I were like okay this is this is really bad. So during the film, one of the uh, one
0: you of the, don't do you have a ride home? How do you know? No, that?
3: we're like free there are no cell phones, you know again, remember, there's no help. SOS nine one one. We're like two kids going like, all right, our our lives are over. We're gonna be raped. like we won't tell anyone, you know. And uh, so this woman in front of us sitting during the movie while the movie is on, gets up and then she says something to the effect of like, well, I don't need a movie and takes her shirt off and takes her bra off. And then other people start taking their shirts off. And at that point, my friend and I are like, we, we got to get out of here. And we start to try to find maybe someplace to hide the owner of the house, the big patron, comes and finds us and he says hey what did you think of the movie <laughs> Which i thought was like well sir i felt that the plot was a little <laughs> you know, we were like cartoon characters <laughs> like so we we literally ran from the house crying tears like and literally waited for her sister to come pick us up Which she eventually did. We get in the car crying. We're like, oh, they're hanging over. Why'd you get all their clothes? You know, of course, the girl's like, what are you two idiots? So we stay in the car. She goes in the house. And again, this is like my recollection. She comes out of that house stone faced she goes let's just get out of here like she wouldn't even tell us we were like what's happening she goes you don't want to know and we try and that is my one and only time going to an orgy i was once many years later when i was my first time in hollywood a famous producer came up to me and invited me to jack's house i was like i think i know what that means i think that means cocaine and like the orgy. <laughs> like so I was like I don't think so. Luckily I had a boyfriend at the
0: time too. There's only one Jack.
3: Well a, b- a bunch of us are gonna be partying later at Jack's house. Don't I you think love it was that. the how many
0: possible names can there be in show business where you know exactly who it is
3: it's like well no it's as we're if going to was...
0: denzel's house i think i know who that is
3: it's as if like they like a telegram came in like <laughs> doo, 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 doo. fresh meat coming in never been to hollywood before you know a bunch of us are going to be partying later at jack's house and i was i remember like secretly being thrilled like wow i'm good enough looking to somebody would want to ply me with drugs and then you know it's not good did I'm you good. always
0: feel like when you got out of the shower I'm going to fuck people up today.
3: No, I, you know, listen, I'm, I have the opposite, you know, like people would have low self-esteem and not think they were attractive. I had the delusion that I was really good looking and really sexy and, but nobody else thought so. So I was always shocked. Like, I was like, what is, look at me. I look great. But you
0: are beautiful. And it's in that way. Like when, you know, Barbara Streisand (laughs) did Funny Girl, I mean. Beautiful, but I mean, there, there. I guess there are a lot of people, or some people, that would think I'm not attracted to Barbara Streisand. I
3: I have found that like what what men seem to have with me, and I'm gonna put myself down a little bit. It's like I find myself attracted to you, and it repulses me. But like that's their
0: that's their opening line.
3: Well, no, but like that's why I feel that they feel like. Ugh. Like they can't figure it out. Like why? This is the
0: thing you've been, you've, never... been in, you've been in long term <laughs> relationships.
3: Yes, that's true.
0: You don't One. stay in a long term relationship <laughs> with a genius who yes. we're going to talk about a little later. Yes, unless you are satisfying them it doesn't happen okay so obviously clearly you're 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 doing something right so what's your next thing in show business that happens
3: oh so what was great about that was i then i was truly delusional like that being in that company then i went to new york and got into an acting school and was a complete and utter failure everything i did at that school uh Nobody liked what I did. I got I got more... Na- I was bombarded.
0: What school was that?
3: It was... Um, do I have to say? No. I feel bad. No. I don't want to say. We'll cut that
0: part out. Don't worry about it.
3: But it was... I went to this... You know, it's on the internet or whatever. And I met, <laughs> I met interesting people there. But no, I was not... Um, I just...
0: So you're failing as an actress, even though you were going into the company... I'm sorry. You were going into the acting school or class with hundreds of hours of, yes. of, of of practice, hundreds of hours on stage, yet you went into New York in the biggest area in the world and were failing with those group of people. Is yes, it because they were so much better than you?
3: No. I mean, again, this was my own delusion. I'm like, how do they not see the genius? Like, how do they not see it? Like, I'm incredible. And what was weird was that they kept picking me to be in senior productions for small parts. So I was like, this was so jarring because they would trust me with like a little small part. Yet when I was in when I when I was in like scene study class, it was like, no, oh, sorry, Liana, can you sit down? That was awful. You know, uh I mean one of the my there were so many negative things to me. My my favorite one, which I said in the book, Ileana, some people are sexy, you try to be sexy. <laughs> it was like another I was like, I don't know what that means, but like, could fuck up, you could fuck up your head. Uh, and they were upset. Another teacher was obsessed with my voice. Said that my voice was so horrible, I was going to end up selling refrigerators. The first job I ever got was because of my voice. So that teacher literally made me practice. I had to speak in a different register. So I actually had a, a vague british accent <laughs> like when i was at this school i decided that i would I- emulate audrey Hepburn.
0: after Except, you started doing well did you go back and say i deserve an apology
3: i think that person sadly passed away too a lot of luckily for a lot of these people have died the woods
0: and death yes, are the theme of this permeates,
3: podcast. permeates but then the next school that i went to which was the neighborhood playhouse i just i mean again this is part of my delusion i go to an acting school right they tell me you're horrible. <laughs> like please. they actually
0: said you're horrible.
3: No, but they at the at the first at the end of the first year, there was another actor I was in school with, who's now on the show Mike and Molly. I hope I may say his name because I thought he was wonderful, named Lou Mastillo, and he and I, we used to just we had this very interesting quality where. We would literally walk on stage and everybody would laugh. Like we didn't, nobody we, I hadn't even done anything yet. It was almost disconcerting. It was like I would just step in the and people would the teacher would go quiet, and I was like, okay, this is crazy. Like so, the audience has always really liked us, but the teachers didn't seem to like us. And at the end of the first year, the head of the school, uh, I had done these what I you know these final these scenes, which is so funny. Your final scenes with which you will be judged by. And I did my scene and the audience, people were like hooting and how I was I mean it was crazy. I was like I had the you know I was like 18. I was like, I killed. I came off stage on the head of the school like I was like, finally, finally she will say she you know how great I am. And she took my hand and she said, goodbye, Eliana. and i thought that did not that did not sound good at all and about three weeks later i got a letter saying we we were we are not asking you back and uh i was working in a hotel wait
0: time out yes how do you have the performance of the night Mm -hmm. are in the hot seat as far as the number one person getting the most attention Mm -hmm. you do not show up late How do you get fired? Why do you get fired?
3: Uh, You tell me. I mean— Well, didn't you ask? I—if you want my honest opinion, I was 18 years old. I I believe that that person was trying to kill my spirit. But
0: why would she kill your spirit?
3: Because there's a—because there's a—you know, we want to control people and put them in a box—
0: I know the kind of people who want to break people's spirit, but uh-huh. they want to break people's spirit while they're still in control of them and around them. Why would she break your spirit knowing that she just let you go and she wouldn't have the opportunity to keep breaking your spirit?
3: Because I I, I mean, that's why, unless... In, in because I can't even... My head, I, I'm, I know that I wasn't bad that day. I saw the audience reaction, you know? I had come from this background of musical theater i had had and i talk about this in my book it sounds like insane but literally the day of cuz this is why it was like the whole book is about these crazy circumstances one of the first movies i ever remember seeing was paint your wagon and i developed a bizarre obsession for lee marvin he just he was like my guardian i was like if lee marvin's on television it's going to be a good day i'm walking to school and I see Lee, it was like, this is not, it's like the guy helping me with the dance. I'm like, there is Lee Marvin, like on the street, Lee Marvin walking. There was no reason for him to be on Madison Avenue that day. I step in front of him. No, oh, it's incredible. I'm an actress. And you're in the first movie I ever saw. And I start going on and on about him. And he looked like he was hungover. And he <laughs>
4: <like> puts, <laughs> puts
3: his hand up. Stop, please. And he said to me, young lady, if you have half as much energy on stage as you do in real life, you ought to do just fine. And he was right. And I was like, thank you, Lee Marvin. You know, and then I so I went I I was on cloud nine. I was like, who cares what she thinks? Lee Marvin thinks I'm like, you know, he he got it. And I'm not kidding about that. Like, it took me 20 years to realize that's why I wrote a book about it. He got that. He got something from me that she didn't get. And I understand I can be a very polarizing figure. I now accept that. But I, for some reason, this person didn't like me. And this school was, I wasn't right for this school.
0: Why do you think you're a polarizing figure?
3: Because I'll give you, let me, i give you a sports analogy. Oftentimes the flashiest, you know ugh, snowboarder ice skater they they're the people that come in second. The person that that does the boring, flawless dive oftentimes wins. and I'm at home going, "What are you crazy? The other guy did three things. He should win, but I feel as if I'm the person who does the more flashy, risky thing. But that not everybody can agree on, and I think that in a the society we want to be sure we want to we want to we want to have twenty people agree on the same thing, and so therefore you can have people that are wildly your fans, and then other people that just maybe can't stand you. They don't like your voice, they don't like your look, they don't you know, and I and I feel as if that's what was happening there. I did have fans there, but then I also had people. That just didn't, they were like, that woman, she didn't like me. I mean, she, she, you know, when she said goodbye, Ileana, that meant goodbye. That meant I never have to see your face again. It was like, you know, I, and I, and I, I took it as a, like a badge of honor that I was going to prove her, you know, that I was going to prove her wrong. And as I said, I went to the next, school <laughs> I went to the next I was like well okay I bombed out at that school but I, so I went to a whole new school and I started all over again and that went a little bit well, better that, for well, me well
0: that's the thing about this world is is like even personally and not professionally if you're in a town and everybody's bullying you
3: right you get to
0: move to another town and just start over again well,
3: people forget that you know sometimes like you know when you know, when you're young and somebody says, you know, you're a terrible actor, or you're awful, you should, you know, oftentimes, sometimes people, uh, you know, believe that. And if I believed the things that people said about me, I would have never, you know, I would have never continued.
0: One of my favorite things that Byron Allen said when he did the podcast, he said, you know, I do my television shows and a lot of people make fun of me because they get a one rating. And for those of you who don't know, uh, a one rating basically means that ninety nine out of a hundred people don't like you and don't want to watch you and don't <laughs> care about your shows. And he paused and he said, "And I'm a millionaire.
3: Wow! Because
0: there's seven billion people in the world, mm-hmm. and I'll take my one percent mm-hmm. and be very, very happy.
3: You have to do your own. You know, you have to do your own thing. You have to. So
0: tell me how yes. you started getting into the film world."
3: Um well I again I was I so at this around this time I was doing um I wanted to be an actor and I was doing stand up again cuz I just I needed to pay the rent I needed to do something to make some money. Tell
0: me some of the stand-ups you worked with that you thought were going to be big. Uh, I did. Who...
3: I didn't work with anyone. I mean, literally, I did this for a minute and a half.
0: Was but... there anyone who you saw at the club? Yes, that you were I like... saw
3: Jay Moore and Dave Chappelle. I saw Rosie <laughs> well, I <was> O'Donnell. Managing. <laughs> I saw Rosie O'Donnell. Wendy Liebman was starting. And the person I was put on the bill with the most... So pathetic was Judy Gold. I would getting, I was getting bill. There was at the time they would make a bill of all women. It was like women in comedy was a new thing.
0: Judy Gold, for those of you who don't know, look her up. One of the funniest, brash. Incredible personalities, six foot two. Yeah, God, no one went toe to toe with me more than Judy Gold. She was so funny.
3: Well, imagine me, like, you know, being at one of these places, and you follow, you know, Rosie O'Donnell and Judy Gold, and they're like, and now Ileana Douglas. (laughs) Like, you know, I was a hippie, and you know, and but the thing is, people like, you know, the the people that were working with me really liked my comedy. But what was your
0: best joke?
3: I don't know if I had, you know, when you say best joke, it was my whole persona of telling, you know, telling stories. I'd say, "Well, here we are. It's it's autumn in New York. It's so great. You can always tell when it's autumn in New York because the bums begin to turn yellow and fall. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so it's sweet." And I was, you know, and that's what I was, you know. i was like, I, you know, I'd be like, I'd talk about hippie humor. It's always embarrassing when your family's, you know, your dad's got better pot than you do. <laughs> Friends are like, can you can you score something from your dad? No, I can't. <laughs> so it was a lot of that. And we grew up poor and we didn't have any toys. And my mother used to say, you know, she just stepped up. My brother's beat me up. And we'd call it Rock'em Sock'em Robots. But it wasn't the same.
0: <laughs> so you had the point of view humor and it was good. It
3: was- i That's the thing. Like, I didn't know. Like, to me, it was like I would stand in the living room with my roommate and I'd be like, I think I'm going to say this. And I'd be like, you know, you go to the Korean market and they're selling this thing. Uh, I said, you know, sea legs. Sea legs of what? What <laughs> in the sea has legs? It's like, and then they have another thing called mermaid salad. It's like, yeah, she got caught in the net. <laughs> well, it's really terrible killing mermaids. But it, and my roommate would look at me and go, that is not funny. <laughs> but I was like, really? I think it's funny. So, But I would just go up there or I'd... You know that I.
0: Now, know, who is worse, comedians
3: trying to sleep with you or actors? Oh no, no comedians were wanted to sleep with me. Actors. No. A- I once had an actor, bless his heart, who tried so hard to sleep with me, and I would not let him in my hotel room. I finally said goodnight to him, and I'm lying in bed <laughs> with the lights out, <laughs> and the phone rings, and I pick up the phone. I go yes. And he goes, I'm really hanging on to the bumper, aren't I? Can I just, I was like, no, you can't. But I was like, that became my favorite phrase. I'm, I'm really, I'm hanging on to the bumper at this point. I was like, yeah, you will be remembered. You gave it a good, the college try. As a woman, do you appreciate the guy who's persistent like that? My persona, because I've been friends with a lot of like, you know, ladies, Men, like let's just, you know, womenizers or whatever. and i'm I'm always like, I like to be the friend, you know, because that way you get you, you know you you're just the friend of the person. and they contemplate like, you know, someday you and I'm like, that's never gonna happen <laughs> <'Cause> I, <laughs> I see here and see your repertoire, but it's good, <laughs> but we'll be friends. We'll flirt. That's the better position.
0: What's the best line you ever heard, besides the bumper line, the best line you ever heard to try to get you to a point where you would go out with somebody or sleep with somebody? that, like, I remember this guy Frank Santarelli had this line that he used to use in Boston, and it was so horrifying, but it worked for him. He'd go up to a girl, he'd say, oh, finding you tonight was like... Finding a twenty dollar bill on the ground.
3: Oh my God, that's <laughs> pathetic. You, that's good. No, it's horrible. But that's it's the terrible. For- <laughs> the uh, the best line that anybody ever said to me, and but it, was, it wasn't you know specifically a line. But we went out to dinner, and he asked me, "What is it uh, you're looking for in a man?" And I thought that that was the most profound thing that anybody ever said. And the and the greatest uh womanizer I was ever with, who in my uh I think was Joe Mankowitz, the director bless you. Bless you. Joseph mankowitz uh, who had a reputation with the ladies, and he was uh he was like a you know, a psychiatrist. He could just tell you who you were. And I found that to be very seductive. And, um, and that's what he said. He said, all women want to, you know, they want to be analyzed, psychoanalyzed. I, you know, I was, nobody ever asked me. You know, I love all these that question.
0: Years. I'm going to steal that if I can ever go out with a woman again.
3: Well, I said, well, I, I'm going to tell you my answer and then you have to analyze my answer. Um, I said, cause nobody had ever asked me this before. So the answer that came tumbling out was I said to be understood. And I almost started crying when I said it, cause I didn't expect to be asked this question and I answered it honestly. Um, and he nodded and he said, yeah, me too. That's what I want. That's what I would want. I want to be understood. And so I thought that that was, so what would you You know, what is it you would most, what is it you're most looking for in a woman? For me,
0: what I'm most looking for in a woman is somebody uh, who makes me feel like I want to make her feel, which is safe. Mm -hmm. Thing is, which is probably dysfunctional about me, is I want to know that my life is not a hindrance on their existence. There's nothing worse than feeling like a woman is going to say you know i gave up this 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 and this to be with you mm-hmm. and you just keep going with your life the way it is and i had to give up all this to be with you that mm-hmm. that just would destroy me i just want to know that they're they're feeling good they're mm-hmm. feeling so hopefully some decade the new chapter will begin, but I digress. So I wanna talk about your film career and how you got into film and how you ended up meeting one of the great loves of your life, the genius I talked about earlier, Martin Scorsese.
3: Yes, many. I've been lucky, I've met many geniuses. He was the first, or maybe second, but of many geniuses, yes. Um, well, that's when I was working my first, again, my, you know, I was in, I'd gotten out of acting school and doing some, um, you know, off, off Broadway theater. And I got into a company of actors that a lot of them were working as assistants at a a building called the Brill Building.
0: Of course, famous building on New York on Broadway, I believe. Yes,
3: And at the time, this was 1987, there was, people were, you know, Jonathan Demi and, uh, Warren Beatty and Elaine May were cutting Ishtar there, and, and Marty had offices in the building. Paul Schrader, and um, there was somebody in the company that was working for this director named Frank Perry, and Frank Perry, uh, was his office was next to Peggy Siegel, publicist, very famous publicist, and were and her, she had an assistant, and that assistant was actually going to work. For Marty, and they recommended me because they said, Oh, she's, you know, she's got like showbiz, you know, she's very personable and she's got like an encyclopedic knowledge of show business, which I did at the time. I sort of knew everybody. And so I got a job, you know, working there in the office, and it was an amazing job working behind the scenes. We did films like uh, The Untouchables, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Midnight Run. I mean, it was, you know, those years. And when you say
0: we did, what were you doing?
3: And when I say we, I'm, believe me, I'm like, a, oh, well, what was the I'm office doing peon. on those? Okay. Uh, Peggy Siegel was doing. Oh,
0: you're doing the publicity. Got was it. Was doing I, yeah. all of Got the
3: publicity. It. Got it. For, for those films so when's the
0: first time you met marty scorsese the, you call him marty uh you're the like the only person well that i've met in my life that just it's a, like a, this loving term of endearment i'm sure many people call him that but it's just you have this thing that it just feels like you know when you say i'm going to marty's house yes you don't know it's martin scorsese so that's the whole thing
3: well what's funny about about uh marty is that you know i was a fan of <laughs> I mean, my favorite Marty movies were King of Comedy.
0: Of course. I have the After I have Hours. A picture of it right you know, there in not my
3: case. The hits, not like, I mean, I was like, eh, Raging Bull. It's all right. Mean Streets. And, you know, like, not that those aren't brilliant films. Of course, I know they're brilliant films. But for me as a woman, I was like, oh, King of Comedy. I mean, After Hours, I those were the my favorite Marty movies. And I love New York, New York. And Alice doesn't live here anymore. So, but anyway, he was. He worked in our building and I, uh, he was very, you know, an elusive figure. He was somebody that had a long term uh, relationship with a publicist named Marion Billings. That was his, he, it would have been Peggy's dream to represent Martin Scorsese. And the other thing is that working for Peggy, I mean, again, in those days, you know, we were so respectful. Nobody even knew I was an actress. I mean, I was like, for all intents and purposes, I I answered the phone and write press kits and helped out actors. You, If you were, I mean, it was unheard of to try to like push your own agenda as an actress. But uh, this girl who worked for Marty, they, they had, you know, they were auditioning people for Last Temptation of Christ. And in a, again, a ridiculous circa as if I were in MGM move I had these pictures taken of me this was the era of a designer named Kenzo where it was like everything was wrapped in a headscarf so I had these headshots taken of me wrapped in a turban and I sent them over there to the casting person I said look at how good I look in a turban I should be in Last Temptation of Christ of course nothing happened with it you know but on my resume, because I had n- nothing on my resume, I thought it would be funny. Under special skills, I wrote blood-curdling screams, <laughs> and great legs milking a goat, and everything else <laughs> ever done in the world ever. That was like my little. I was like, I had one thing going for. Her. I was like, maybe, maybe if they go to the bottom, they're like, eh, it's kind of funny. Maybe she does have good legs. Maybe she milks a goat. You know, like I, I throw it against the wall, and they'll bring me in. So, sure enough, I'm working for Peggy, and I had gotten a little bump. Frank Perry. One day, they had li- literally forgotten to cast a small part in a movie called Hello Again. Came running in. You're an actress, right? I was like, "Yes, uh, I'm an actress who answers the phone." He goes, "No, I mean, do you? You know, I need. We forgot to cast this part in a movie. You want to come sh- yell at Shelley Long?" I was like, "Uh, yeah. Sh- can I, Peggy? Can I?" And then. What's even more bizarre, he was like, Do you have a monologue? <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was like, I do have a monologue. So I went to his office, did a monologue. Next thing I know, I'm he's like, I'm taking her, Peggy. Got me out of the office, went downtown, Duane Street, putting me in clothes, hand me a stroller. There's your lines, go yell at her. I'm long, this Long, very nice to meet you. You know, like I'm in the i I'm like, okay, that's over, okay, cut, bring her back up. I got my SAG car. I was like, this is unbelievable. They had to Taft Hartley me as they call it.
0: Fate is an amazing thing. Taft Hartley, you want to explain that to our audience? Because it's a a... It
3: means that when an extra suddenly speaks and they are not in the union and that becomes a fact after they have already spoken it means you have to Taft-Hartley them meaning they are automatically now in the union. So that is and how then, I got my union And
0: then card. the next gig you get that pays money you don't see that money because they delete your yeah. money and put it into the union dues.
3: But that is how I became a Screen Actors Guild member yelling at Shelly Long. So this story made it around the building they were like i heard this crazy frank perry literally was like you you're gonna be in my movie and i was like well it wasn't that big. but it was kind of like a like a story like a publicist had made it up but for the first time people had this awareness that like oh you're funny you're an actress you're an actress
0: well they also wouldn't have that awareness if frank perry hadn't come through the office and said oh she did a really great job
3: possibly yes possibly i never thought of that
0: i think definitely
3: oh well thank you but the so i sent my resume over to marty's assistant and she says it says here on your special skills blood curdling scream do you really have a blood curdling scream And i was like oh yeah i really do and i said yeah i did this play (laughs) i'm at work like my boss (laughs) i'm like I said, "Yeah, I did this play, and the director said you have this amazing scream. You should put it on your resume—blood-curdling scream." And then she's like, "No, I'm serious." I was like, "Yes, it's blood—it's cur- horrible. It's blood-curdling." She goes, "All right, I'm gonna—I'm gonna send you down because they need to dub a scream for Barbara Hershey in *Last Temptation of Christ*. They need to dub a scream, and you're gonna go down at five o'clock today and scream for Martin Scorsese. I've never met the man." I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, sounds funny, you know. Five o'clock comes, go down the third floor.
0: Five o'clock comes, Peggy, um, do you mind if I go downstairs?
3: Oh, no, 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 never would have. De- that's was, this was all done they, they, behind Peggy's back. So I go down there, I meet, you know, Mr. Scorsese at the time and his editor and all the people that are there. And there's like this laughing, like, oh. I said no. I'm serious. It's really like you want to put the mics, and they're laughing. Like I said, no, it's really bad. It's like blood curdling, and and they're laughing and yucking it up and stuff. And and I was like, whatever, Mr. Scorsese. So I get I get up behind the mic, you know, and I thought, okay, well, this better be really, really good. So I, you know, I like prepare. I said I'm gonna prepare, and they were literally like in almost stifling laughter. As I'm like trying, as I'm preparing, and I sort of make myself cry. I like, ah! do my scream,
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: you know, total silence, and then burst of applause from everyone. Marty goes, "That's horrible! How do you do that?" I go, "I work for a publicist. It's pretty easy." <laughs> big laugh, get a big laugh. She's great. She's great. He says, "Okay, we're now we're not doing the scream." Yeah, we're doing this loop group. He goes, "Can you come tomorrow?" The fight. He's talking really fast. A bunch of people, with crowd noises. You want to do some crowd noises? And I'm like, "Absolutely!" I walk upstairs. I'm like, "What is a loop group? <laughs> I have no idea. What does that mean?" So I go down, and there's a bunch of people there, including Michael Powell, a pretty famous British director, one of Marty's, you know, mentors, married to the Thelma Schoonmaker, and one at a time we're we're in this crowd and we're like kill the romans know, yeah, doing crowd stuff and then it was very silly like then Mar- marty was just like uh you just come up and just people were saying different things and uh then we were doing joke we were doing like you know as if it were godzilla who's making people like he's a do like bad japanese <laughs> dubbing and we're doing all of this. And then he goes, "Um, you. And he kept picking on me to come back up and do something else. And the next day uh, that, you know, his assistant said, well, you know, Marty really likes your voice. You know, he wants you to do more stuff in the you know, would you be willing to do it? There's going to be no money and, you know, you just do these little voices and everything. But they, because they can't, they couldn't, they had to, you know, there was all this controversy with the film. So anyway, I go, so this became this like three week long uh, work. I I couldn't work during the day, but I would come down and, you know, while they were putting up different reels, um, you know, we would, I would talk about a, director of film and we so we started bonding over things like that i always i give a lot of credit to mel brooks because i had had this comedy album growing up 2000 year old man and there's a routine that he and carl reiner do which was like a family favorite that my parents always used to do about i'm gonna go save france i'm gonna go wash up you go save france i'm gonna go wash up and so at one point it was like we're coming up on lunch and Marty was walking out the door, and he goes, "I'm gonna," you know, he's got that New York accent. He goes, "I'm just gonna go wash up." And I said, "Yeah, I'll go say France. You go wash up." And it was literally like, you know, Walter Matthau and The Odd Couple. Like his back just went. How do you know this two thousand year old man? How do how do you know that? How do you how, you're so young? How do you know that? And I was like, yeah. I said, "Oh, the astronaut routine." And then we started doing the astronaut routine. This is my favorite line. You know, he's like. When Carl Reiner says to him, you seem, it's still to this day, I think, my favorite two lines in comedy. He goes, you seem you seem ill-equipped to be an astronaut.
4: <laughs> and Mel
3: Brooks goes, what are you talking about? I got the gloves and everything. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. Anyway, he, so.
0: If, you, if, if you're out there listening and you have never, ever heard the 2,000-year-old man with Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks. The best. Just go to whatever device you have. Or old vinyl uh, retro store and get the album or download it or do whatever. Yes. One of the absolute uh, Mount Rushmore of comedy routines.
3: Yes. So in the midst of this.
0: Now, they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did you know?
3: No. Oh, God. No. I mean, that's. you know. now
0: How old are you and how old's Marty now?
3: <sighs> I'm not good. This is 1987. Uh, how if you
0: had to I? guess.
3: Twenty-three, and how maybe? old is he? In his forties. Got it. Okay, late like forties. This is like a twenty-year difference. Got it. But in terms of, you know, are we compatible in terms of like talking about movies? It was like you know, nonstop fun, and also you know, he was he was married, so I wouldn't have ever. Thought, I mean, I hate to sound naive, but it's like I would have. It would have never occurred to me. Oh, he's. Word in sync or simpatico. I wouldn't have thought that way.
0: But there comes a point in time where you have to be, as a human being,
3: that occurs sim- when we're on a day. I'm like, he may actually like me. No, I have low self esteem. We're, we're, we're in bed together. He may actually like me. <laughs> <laughs> that's I have low, it's called low self esteem.
0: No, but there has to be a moment where you say to yourself, <laughs> okay, there's something's happening here. And I didn't think it was.
3: Well, as we're working, and then I must get in this because I this to me is what I thought was very endearing about Marty is he starts bragging how he's on the 2013. He said, you know, I'm on the 2013, the record that they did in L.A. You can hear me laughing. I'll bring it in for you. And so in the midst of this huge controversy and he's supposed to be doing the film, he makes them put on the album and we're sitting in the looping in the stage listening to him. He goes, There are am. <laughs> that's me can you hear it that's there i am and um we both you know love mel brooks but no i didn't as we were as the looping sessions were going longer and longer and then he gave me a whole part in the i dubbed someone's whole part so i had like 10 lines and what as we were doing that i remember that one day uh i was going to the elevator and he said where where are you going and i said well i'm and he was going down to the car to go home. And he said, Oh, where are you going? You know, and I said, Well, I'm going back upstairs to work. And he goes, Oh, I me too. And it was so I was like, I have a feeling he was and then he got in the elevator and they were both riding the elevator. And then we went upstairs and it was kind of like I was walking along and he was walking along. And I got to the to where my to where Peggy was. And she, I looked in and nobody was there. And he was like, Oh, is this where you work? And I said, Yes. And he goes, Is that your little desk? And I was like, Why is Martin Scorsese talking to me? Doesn't he see I have better things to do? So I did get to my desk and kind of like, But it, you know, but it was, um, but no, I would have never, you know, and then I remember having, uh, subsequently having parties and I invited, him to my house for a, for a twister party, which he didn't... I wrote him a card saying, you know, all work and no twister is not good for directors. or <laughs> Something like that. And he declined coming, but he sent me, like, a bottle of Cristal champagne. And my roommate, of course, was like, "Oh yeah, he sent you Cristal. I was like, he, uh, what does that mean? He's like, he likes you. He sent you Cristal champagne. So... But it was, and then I was invited to many movies and things like that. But no, it took me a very long time until, you know, we were friends. I was around and working and I was in New York stories and people were, would comment to me, God, you guys get along so great. And I'm like, he's the best. He's great.
0: But when you're around him and his wife, how how did that go? Was there tension?
3: Well, no, I did not, I was not aware at the, at the premiere of New York Stories. I knew that he lived on 662nd Street. And um, he, at the premiere of New York Stories, he said he wanted to talk to me about, it was then called Wise Guys. He said, I want you to get a copy of the book Wise Guys and read it and there might be something in it for you. And and uh, he said, you know, come over to the house and, and uh, talk about it. And I, I said, yeah. And he said, I'm living on, you know, uh, 57th Street. I want to say the per- his assistant. She'll give you the address. And I said, oh, you moved. And he said, I said, the- he goes, what? And I said, well, I thought you lived on 62nd Street. You moved to 57th Street. And he goes, <laughs> you're so naive. And I was like, I don't- what does that mean? You know, of course, then I was like, oh, I think that means living separately. So that's I no I would have never ever again imagined you know or it wouldn't have been in my in the realm of my consciousness to anticipate.
0: So I'm sure it's in the book, but tell us the story the moment where you the guys realized right. that okay this is more in the friendship. What happened?
3: Um, uh, we'd been friends for a very long you know said a couple of years working together and everything, and then. Um, he asked me out on like a proper date. And I was actually scared about that. I was like, wow, a date? Like a date? Like where we go out and talk? Because up until then we would be, you know, we'd see a movie because I was invited. He obviously was his staff and everything. And it was great. And you know, I'd be there for hours. And I thought, oh, a date like that could not that could be bad because I liked him so much as a person and obviously respected him and obviously wanted to work with him that I would be very, very concerned that that would be a very bad idea because I was he's obviously he's in a different, you know, world than me. And that seemed to be a dangerous thing and we went out on a on a date and i think we we literally like they were at the restaurant going like can you two wrap it up it's like <laughs> four in the morning okay that's one yeah, of my I other
0: guess. favorite things about being with the right woman is closing down restaurants
3: oh my god they were like can we yeah okay. You both like ice cream. Can you go home now? <laughs> like, so it just, and from probably, and so from that, you know, from that uh, moment, we, we just, I just realized, you know, that's not to say that it wasn't always a challenge, as I say, to write about in my book. Obviously, his career and the stratosphere that he's in, and he is a genius and so very, very talented, and me trying to carve out a career for myself you know, obviously had had its uh, challenges.
0: It's tough to talk about this. The first time I ever saw you was one of the most uncomfortable uh, scenes in a movie theater that I've ever been in in my life, and that was the scene in Cape Fear uh-huh. with De Niro. Yes. I mean, I still get emotional about it. It was just, uh, and so I think to myself, here you are with the, the director, mm-hmm. the man who you're in a relationship with. And he's casting you in a role where it's going to be the most memorable role up to that point that anybody's going to see you, mm-hmm. and you're being cast as somebody who's being raped, and a guy is literally taking a piece of your face and spitting it out.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: H- how do you ha- <laughs> how do you handle that? I mean, not just not just as an actress, yes, but then you're working with another genius. Robert De Niro, in front of the man you're in a relationship with, another genius, Mm -hmm. in the most vulnerable, horrific scene, probably, and believable scene that you'll ever see in film in your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm getting emotional. I was just thinking about it. Like, how do you, I mean, how do you, how do you handle that?
3: I think, I mean, to me, I just looked at it as, you know, I'd had good training And I did, I mean, I was not naive enough to know that, uh, you know, my credibility was in question. There would be, even though I, you know, I auditioned for New York Stories, I got in New York Stories over other actresses. I auditioned for Cape Fear. I wasn't just handed the role. I mean, you know, um, Bob, you know, Mr. De Niro is obviously, you know, as Marty said, like, It's not really. It's not up to me, you know. If Bob, if you don't have chemistry with Bob, like that's it. And so I had I auditioned for the casting person, then I did an improv scene, you know, bar scene with you know with Bob, and then I was cast in the role. And
0: but did he know that you were in a relationship with Marty?
3: Yes, yes. I mean, everybody. It was so quiet, but.
0: If you are directing a film, which you've done many times in your life, yes. okay, and there's a man that you're in a relationship with, mm-hmm. and you have him audition with another man who uh, is in the film that you've cast in the film, mm-hmm. and the guy knows that you're in a relationship, what's that going to do for your relationship? He says, you know, I don't have chemistry with that person. I don't <laughs> want them in the film. I'm sorry. I know you're directing the film, and I know you're a genius, and I know you've been nominated for several Academy Awards, but I'm a... I don't want your girlfriend in this film. He's never going to say that.
3: Well, no, I knew. I mean, I.
0: I mean, I know you earned the part, and I'm sure by far you blew everyone away. I'm just saying that what person in the right mind is going to say, uh, you know, Marty, not now, okay? It's just like <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do this. I'm sorry if it's damaging a relationship, but I'm not going to do this. That would never happen.
3: Well, I do you... don't. I mean, again, I don't know. I think that. You know, I knew. Well, I had, I had worked in Goodfellas, you know, with Bob a little bit. So I was on the set every day of that film. So another
0: I, one of the greatest movies. Of yeah, all time. really,
3: I know, amazing. Who knew at the time? But I was around every day because we were in a relationship. And again, when I was on the set of Goodfellas. You know, I had had this, like, little taste of doing stand-up. And one of these, you know, retarded little routines I used to do was called Raging Bullwinkle. <laughs> and Marty would say, oh, do that. You know, because Mar- Marty was like a big, you know, he was like a big... He's very funny. They, all these guys are very funny. I think that that's what they... they Obviously, they appear very intense. But, you know, Bob and Joe Pesci and Marty, they're really, really funny. And so they... Uh, Marty said, do that raging bull thing for, for him. I mean, you know, I'm like, that was nothing was as scary as having Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro standing at me like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm like, well, uh, did you fuck my wife? And doing like, you know, doing my little routines for them. And, uh, and so I just was always, and I would do, I did another thing, nobody even knows who she is anymore, but with Shelly Winters. Of course,
0: Shelley Winters, one of my favorite stories about Shelley Winters that's very famous. Uh, Most of you, if you're that old, would remember her as an amazing role way beyond when she started in The Poseidon Adventure, which she was nominated for an Academy Award. But before then, she'd already won two Academy Awards, and a famous story of hers was that a director asked her to audition, and she went to his office and she pulled out both Academy Awards out of her bag and slammed them on his desk and said, here's my fucking audition.
3: Yeah. So she was, you know, she had been, uh, it, she would go on talk shows and she was very, you know, the word like blousy, very kind of loud. And and she would throw around the name Bobby all the time. Bobby Bobby, and I were at the studio and, and I, I I taught Marilyn how to be sexy. and I, I, And so... Marty would go, do your Shelley, do the Shelley winners. I'd be like, (laughs) Bobby said, you know, never have fish off the truck. (laughs) I taught him everything. (laughs) And it was like, so I was, so anyway, to get back to Cape Fear, I, you know, I then I got cat, I auditioned for this movie called Guilty by Suspicion that Erwin Winkler produced, directed, and Erwin Winkler produced, um, uh, Goodfellas, and I had auditioned for a larger part, but I did not get that part. And then they wanted me to be in this like pretty thankless role. I played um, mm-hmm. Daryl Zanuck's secretary. I mean, I was like, I was like, I've been in like, Goodfellas, but Marty, of course, you know, talk about going to every party. No, you're gonna do Serwin. You're gonna do that film. So I was like, do hey, the film. <laughs> so I was in the scene. I was so hamming it up. I literally have like a, a part that they should have given to, you know, an extra. <laughs> they
0: should li- have given to a publicist assistant.
3: But I had scenes like, you know, where De Niro, who's playing a kind of a John Garfield type guy who's been blacklisted. And his he'd come in and he's, he's being black. He's being ostracized. So he'd come up to the desk and he'd be like, is Daryl in, you know, in my line would be like, no, he's not. <laughs> you know, like, something really important, like that. And um, I had a lot of those. Like, but I was always, I, you know, like there would be a screening, and I'm next to Daryl Zanuck, and I was always like, actor Studio. I'm like, oh. I would be like, hamming it up, <laughs> writing. At one point, Erwin Winkler, I had like, I was, I had this, I had my little dress picked out and everything, and I was sitting there, and I had, you know, this little dress on, and I was sitting there like this. I had it so posed, you know, I was ready. And everyone goes, "Cut, cut!" He said, Ileana, you're you are upstaging the whole scene with your legs. Do you have <laughs> to have them that way." I was like, "Damn it!" <laughs> I was I was trying to upstage Robert De Niro with my legs? And uh, so I was sort of a cut up on that. And one day, oh my God, it's so sad. I'm so delusional. But one day, Steven Spielberg. And a man named Michael Ovitz, I think we all remember him. He's one of the greatest, you know, agents of all time. They came to visit. For those
0: of you out there in the land, Mike Ovitz uh, started a little company called Creative Artist Agency CAA. And
3: Yes. So you can imagine like you're an actor. It's all we're looking for is like the big break, that one big break. I'm in a scene with Robert De Niro. Steven Spielberg is watching. Mike Ovitz is watching. I have one line. No, he's not. <laughs> 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 and, and I'm literally like, how am I even going to shoot this thing? And they were like tucked into the corner. Steven Spielberg. I was like, you know how many times I saw Jaws when I was a kid? I was part. I created Jaws. I was in the crowd. Now he's watching me and I have one, I'm an extra.
0: Did you improv a line or
3: something? I did. So what happened was like, you know, so De Niro comes up to the desk. Is Daryl in? And I go, no, he's not. And as he turns to walk around, the camera's still going, I have like, have you seen enough, Mike? Are you ready to sign me? (laughs) This is it. It's all there, right? And there was like this weird, like, like this moment, like, who the fuck are you? Like, why? And then De Niro just starts cracking up because it was a pretty ballsy move. It was pretty. Have you seen enough, Mike? (laughs) Talent, right? It was so. I mean, I'll never forget. I only saw that look one other time, and that was on Bless His Heart. And I have deep respect for him. I really admired him. Casey Silver. Then, I mean, all my pardon, all my. I'm like Rip Van Iliana. It's like, pardon me while we reference things. For
0: Casey Silver was the uh, head of the uh studio at. Um, I'm going blank. Universal. Universal. Thank you.
3: But I remember but Marty head was in, of Universal Studios. Marty was in a deal with him. And I remember Mike Ovitz, the godfather, came to Marty's house, his townhouse, to convince him to be in a movie, wanted him to do to direct this film with Warren Beatty. And it was like, you know, the godfather paying us a visit. And Casey Silver was there having dinner. And I met Casey Silver and Marty's at the head of the table. And Mike Ovitz interrupts the dinner to have this business meeting with Marty about you must direct this picture. And there's, he finishes his his spiel and then he says, all right, I've, I've said enough. I will now go. And then I said, i looked up and I said to Mike, man, this guy Beatty will do anything to get to me, won't he? (laughs) And I'll bless his heart. Casey Silver's face was
4: like,
3: (laughs) I'll never forget that face. Like a pure, fear of like she will never work in Hollywood again like is she insane and there was like that weird like again like my goal was looked at me and he laughed so hard bless his heart he was kind of a fan of mine I I I was so crazy and ballsy like I just literally didn't care I think because I was like I have no career anyway so I was like just make him laugh
0: but that's how you get places when you take those risks and you do those things because it's not it doesn't work the normal way all the time. You have to take risks.
3: The funny thing is and I know I'm going to circle back. Anyway, those stories when I was doing Cape Fear is why I knew that you just had to go for it. Because I was on the set and I didn't you know, you don't get any help from a crew. Sometimes being with a crew, it can be very unnerving. You know, you're not in someone's living room as everybody's laughing at you. It's suddenly, it's like, Mr. Deer, would you like a water? Would you like, the, you know, and you're just being knocked around. And I'm like, we're going to shoot this thing in like 30 seconds. Nobody has even talked to me. And I, I just knew I was going to have to make something important happen. And, and, and I did, we started out doing the bar scene, but I knew that I was going to have to kind of prove myself. And so I, I did. And I think that because of that, I, you know, went up a little, a little rung in, anybody, in everybody's estimation.
0: That scene changed yeah. my life just because, you know, you have one scene where it's like the tension was just so incredible and then I think to myself whose job is it on the set in a situation like that when you're in a scene like that to let you know that hey everything's going to be okay whenever you feel uncomfortable we just stop, we do whatever this is just acting and this war doing, is there anybody who, who does no. that for you?
3: No, no, no. You're, you're, I mean, I felt in that moment, and I, again, I write about this. This was like a very crucial moment in my life and in my career, very similar to the Hartford Stage Company. I thought, well, all I have to do is show up. I mean, De Niro's a genius. Marty's a genius. I just have to listen, and they're going to tell me what to do. Oh, we're shooting it. You know, like nobody, I was like, nobody said anything. I was thinking like I'm gonna like we were suddenly just doing it and I thought I am in deep trouble here like I this is not good I thought they were gonna you know I thought I would just have to lean on them and I realized you know for the first time I went back to my trailer and I thought wow I'm gonna have to really like prepare and think about this and think about what I'm doing in this scene. And I came up with uh, what they, in actor's terms, what was called an emotional preparation. Emotional preparation is basically like, you know, you pump a well and in order to get the water out, the water just doesn't come out. You have to kind of pump it. So what you try to do is you, you, you give yourself a set of circumstances, emotional circumstances that get the, you know the the juice is flowing, and it can't just be like I'm going to be angry, I'm going to be sad. And additionally, with that, like Sanford Meisner, living truthfully under the given circumstances. So my given circumstances in that scene are: I'm having an affair with Nick Nolte. He's going to meet me at the bar. He stands me up. I'm in this relationship with a married man. It's not going anywhere, and I and I've been humiliated, and and i meet this guy at a bar and i'm going to go home with him and so i made my emotional preparation that i was going i was going to get him back because i was going to i was literally going to sleep with the first person who sat down in that stool and i didn't care who it was and i and i knew that and it doesn't matter what robert de niro's character was like so he's you know he's going to you know beat me up and try to kill me but i don't know that and that's not important all i knew was I had this secret that I knew that whatever happened in the scene that I was gonna sleep with Robert de Niro. And that tickled me beyond, so anytime the crew guy was like, why is this stupid? What's she laughing about? Like sistersto, you know, because I had to do all this laughing. I was beside myself because I just was like, I know by the end of the scene I'm gonna like you know get to go home with this guy and that was my you know my kind of emotional preparation and then underneath it was the other stuff about well I'll show you know the Nick Nolte care I'll show him you know that I'm attractive and all that you know he'll be really jealous now that I'm going home with this guy. So those are all the things that went into, I had to do everything in my power to make that guy at the bar go home with me. So I was going to make him laugh. I was going to be cute. I was going to be a flirt. I was going to be really loud and drunken and kind of obnoxious and all of those things were going to get him to you know, to go home with me. But I don't think anybody was prepared for what I did that day. Like, they were, like, it's supposed to be – I think they thought it was just going to be, like, a little scene. And it turned into this huge scene because suddenly, like, you know, De Niro, was, that's what's so amazing about him. He kind of saw what I was doing, and it. he – upped his game, you know, completely. And then he and Marty started talking and then they set up two cameras and they had us do this whole like improv. And so we turned into something that was much, um, you know, that I think was much bigger than they expected. But again, that's a reflection of also working with Marty and working with Bob. I think you go into it wanting to do something, you know, that's really really special and, and different.
0: God, that's awesome. So I want to talk about a few things before I ask you some final questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Let's talk about uh, you created one of the most amazing web series ever. Tell me how you decided, hey, I'm going to go from being a film and television respected actress to the world of the web, knowing that you're making these things for $6 and a bucket of chicken. (laughs) And you got to pull favors with everybody you know to get them to act in them. Mm -hmm. How'd you put it all together? Because I encourage people all over the world to just just do it, just get the camera, create something, write something, Mm -hmm. put it up there. Because you started at zero zero and zero zero became 40 million.
3: Yeah. Well, I I mean, it started, you know, I started doing, um, when I did, I think it was 99, 2000 or whatever, like right around the time of action, I did, um, uh, the Larry Sanders show. And that was another sort of game-changing moment for me because I was working...
0: Another genius.
3: Just beyond. In fact, I had just gotten out of my relationship with Marty, uh, and I was working with Gary. And he was just, he's just such a genius. And, um... Really gave me a lot of confidence in myself because we were talking about, you know, he'd say, I want you to just come to the office and just tell me every funny thing that ever happened to you. And Jon Stewart was the writer and they were like writing. Another down. genius. Another ge- and Judd Apatow also was it just was directing the episode It was the first time he ever directed.
0: He'll be doing the podcast soon.
3: OK, um, I think that's the first thing he ever Another- directed me and me and Gary Shandling in bed
0: three geniuses
3: i know i've been lucky so we
0: that was the first scene he directed was you and chandling in bed
3: yes i've been i'm like uh, it's crazy so he was so you know they were i was like this is interesting they're all i was doing this storyline and i was playing myself but it was like an exaggerated version of myself and then uh gary we had this one scene and I, I there was some reason it felt like that he had hired me and i thought i'm just going to go for it you know so we did this one scene and i just i went off book you know and i started i mean that and it was things were sort of loose anyway but well, i started yelling at him you know and that became the famous when he looked at me i thought he was going to punch me in the face and he said i'm all fucked up and it was like i was started to cry and he started to cry. I was like, this is, whoa, "What's happening?" It was like a real Cape Fear Marty moment when he said that. It was like everything on the set like just stopped, and uh, I knew that you know that that's why I was there. I was a catalyst to get that out of him. I think in some ways, and I that was you know because of that. I think is when I started kind of taking a stab at you know, at writing again and writing, you know, my own material. And then I had done the um, the Ileana Rama show, which you know about. And then that. Which I, then,
0: I, I worked on with you briefly.
3: Yes. And then after that, it didn't, I ended up showing the show, you know, which d- had gone through a lot of challenges with the executives. Again, it's just not, we were just not on the same page.
0: And that was, if you don't mind, as I sit across from you, the most important thing in anything you do is to have relationships with people. And there's going to be things where you get the shit kicked out of you. And sometimes you get the shit kicked out of you and you don't even understand why, because you're not in, you're not present in how things are going. And I was happened to be fortunate enough to work with Liliana on this project. That was such a great project. And, uh, with an associate of mine and, um, we weren't clicking with Ileana. And she uh, made it a point to tell me, and she was very polite and very wonderful. And she actually met with us. And she said, listen, this isn't working. I need to be empowered here. And the energy here isn't uh, empowering. I know what it was, but I don't want to talk about it right here. But, <laughs> But the main thing was, I knew that she really cared about me. I knew that she liked me. And I knew that I knew that she thought that I could still be a part of something, but there was another entity attached to it that I, she didn't feel that way for. That was on me. And here it was my first thing I ever brought to this the table in this new company that I was doing, and I was removed from the project. And but I never stopped loving mm-hmm. what you do. I never stopped loving. And every time I saw you. I always felt comfortable seeing you. I always felt comfortable being around you and I never felt any uncomfortability and all I wanted to do was see you win and hope that you won. So I just want to tell that backstory that. so there's going to be times in your career and everybody's career where things happen and they don't work. You're with a person, they don't work, but you have to make sure that you maintain that relationship with them because you never know what's going to happen in the future. And I know that, uh, you wouldn't be here right now if you didn't feel comfortable with me. And, oh no,
3: and like you said, there's as always in these things, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you look back on a project and and it, you know, it's a it's when you're the talent. And you were also a writer and producer. It is literally almost physically impossible. I just don't know how you do it because people. There were other there were mitigating circumstances in that I had people that I was I was assigned a showrunner. The network we were at was probably not the right network, but in my I think that the the biggest mistake that I made was in my zest to try to get something done I got which I would not do now I got involved with people that messed my head up a little bit in terms of
0: yeah and the only thing I remember saying to you when I met with you and it's always been my thing as a manager producer I don't know why this is I always felt of myself as you can probably laugh at this but I always thought of myself as a dream maker. Mm-hmm. You come to me, you tell me what you want, mm-hmm. and I'll fucking make it happen. Mm-hmm. You want the show sold? I will get you in the room. I will figure out a way how to sell it. But after right. that, there's more to it than at that point in my career than after that. And that's right the thing.
3: But now this could be we're going to go off topic here. But w- tell me what happens because you see you're going to understand this. This is what happens in success. You have a lot of Iagos whispering in your ear.
0: Of course.
3: And it becomes, you don't know who to believe anymore. And I saw this happen with Jay on Action. You're holding up a show, you know, and in this sense, like, I'm writing the show. It's my show. And you've got people, and they're calling, they're saying one thing, and you don't know who to believe anymore. And see, that kind of stuff doesn't happen to me anymore. You know, I was younger then. And stupid because I was swayed by people's opinion. And that's what I regret is that when you are – that's what to me that if I was going to give advice, it's kind of like you can't get involved in office politics or office gossip. It is death because everybody has an agenda. And I was very naive. And if somebody said something to me like, well, you know what he's saying about you behind your back. Like I actually would take that to heart. I'd be like, you're kidding. That is how, that's terrible. And I didn't realize like, oh, people are just manipulating you to get what you want. And the, that, what was interesting about that show was it was, it, I just got involved with people that I should not have gotten involved with, you know, and I have respect for them and for what they do, but it was like, you know, the first acting teacher, they would have never, uh, you know, thought things that I thought were funny I mean you know we had a knockdown, drag out fight about Jane Lynch you know that was like to me I I was like Jane Lynch had you know this was way way before she had broken and I wanted her to be in the show and they had somebody else in mind and they led me down a garden path and they said uh well all she has to do is come in and meet I was like, ah, this is a friendship ender. This is, I, you know, and then she came in and, made, yeah, we don't think so. I was like, guys, this is, you know, those kind of things were, you know, when you're dealing with people like Goldblum or Jane that you're you're friends with, you go, if he doesn't come in and, do you understand how, what a huge favor this is, and and it was a challenge. Of after doing that show, I just figured like I wasn't right for television. And then again, the right person at the right time, because I will get to Easy to Assemble. It was a miracle. Uh, Brian De Palma came back into my life. I'd known him from working at Peggy's and also through Marty. And he just happened to be in town and he wanted to see the show. And I said, it's horrible. And it didn't, you know, they ended up getting rid of me. You know, I remember there was something I had Brian's editor, um, a woman who's gone on to huge claim fame now working with Jed Apatow. Her name has left me, but we uh, she was our editor on it. And uh, I they ended up getting rid of me and recutting it and stuff. And uh, I had the versions of the pilot and I showed it to Brian De Palma. And he said, there's something to this idea. You got to you have to stick with it. And uh, he told, me he said, you know, if you thought about the internet, and this was in 2005, I was like, the internet? Like, what is, what is that?
0: And just so the audience knows, the idea was essentially a, I'll say it was a stretch to believe, but it was possible. It was about actors who were sort of, you know, the times when they were down in their careers taking jobs at a particular supermarket in the Hollywood Bel Air Air kind of uh, area and uh, where all the rich people were. And the hope was if they could just be in that supermarket and be seen by people who were important, maybe they, their careers would go on the right track again.
3: Right. And then, but there was also an underlying, like she, you know, my character is fed up with show business because she wants more meaning in her life. And, you know uh, goes to the supermarket and then unbeknownst to her all these other actors are already working there and uh and she finds herself what i thought was the most important part is she finds herself battling she you know the same things in the supermarket that she was tr- that she hated about being that's
0: in. right and it was just a great great concept
3: so we saw we saw that and then um uh, I b- put it on the, uh, on the internet in the, on YouTube and, and because there has, at that time, 2005, there was literally no celebrities in any kind of internet type show and so we cut it up and here was you know Goldblum and all these other people and um and it got a lot of views it won a tv guide award which now every award i ever win is then non-existent (laughs) like they were up for one year i won the tv guide award um and then the strike happened right and then the, the big internet and while it was up there it caught the eye of an advertising agency a guy um uh, named Fred Dubin, I always credited him because he was the one who saw it. Again, the most bizarre coincidence. He had met me up at Sundance because apparently one night, was like, had had a lot of drink or something, I guess. And I was singing Cat Stevens songs.
0: <laughs> Show up, everybody.
3: <laughs> yeah, and he said, "I thought he goes, like, you know, when I heard your name, I thought that time I saw you at Sundance, and I thought she would be someone fun to get into business with." And the next thing I knew, I was meeting with IKEA. And the idea was it was supposed to do interstitials for them. They had just done a series with this comedian spending the night at at Ikea. And they wanted to do something to broaden their brand and make it not so much about college students. And so I had come up with a little idea of like, oh, we could do these little love vignettes at Ikea. And the more I was talking to the guy, the more in the back of my head I was thinking about the show. And I said, what if we just do this thing where I go work at Ikea? And jeff goldblum is in it and justine bateman and and i remember that the swedish ikea executive leaned forward and he goes jeff goldblum at ikea (laughs) and i said yeah i think i could i think i could get him in it because we had done this movie called pittsburgh which like is mockumentary and i'd done a lot of
0: which is a great uh film which is actually showing at phil rosenthal's house yes coming up this sunday
3: we're going to be reliving it. And I'd done a lot, like, writing the plot of that. And uh, I said, I so I called Jeff, and I said, listen, can you do me a huge favor? Like, will you, I'll do Pittsburgh. Will you be in this web series? And it was unheard of to get, you know, Jeff Goldblum, major celebrity in a web series. And so we, that first year, I called in favors from uh, Tom Arnold, And Robert Patrick.
0: Who, by the way, Tom Arnold, there's a lot of things that are said about certain actors because of their personal lives or how they handle their personal lives. But I will just share this. If no one knew anything about Tom Arnold and just saw him in a dramatic film or uh, any film where he puts it out there, unbelievable actor.
3: He's great. I adore Tom. He knows that. We've been... um you know, longtime friends. We've been, there was a, there was many years ago we were in a movie called Hacks where he was at the height of his career. And uh, I remember like visiting his house. We were all impressed because he had a television in his bathroom. We thought that was like the height of like, when I'm famous, I'm going to do, i could going to have a TV in my bathroom. And I did like then, I ran into him years later. I was like, do you know that the minute I had a big house, I was like, no, I want that closet out. I want a big TV right in the bathroom. But um, uh, we were in a bunch of movies together. We kept getting cast in movies together. And we I adore him. He was a very sweet and caring guy. Um, and he, you know, so we had a, we were appearing together a lot in public. He was single at the time going through a divorce. So he would ask me to go to a lot of public events with him. So I used to tease him saying I was like his pretend girlfriend while he would try to get a real girlfriend but I was like his public persona girlfriend and so we mocked that and so so much of the show for Ikea they just literally you know I wrote the script and it was 40 pages I sent it to them and the guy had literally you know we sat down he had a note and I was like all right here we go notes I know what this is like and he said uh yeah the we don't uh, sell ice cream, it's uh, frozen yogurt. And I said, oh, okay, frozen yogurt? And then he goes, that's it.
4: <laughs>
3: and I said, what? <laughs> he goes, good stuff. Good stuff. And I was like, the next thing I know, we're shooting at Ikea with like Robert Patrick and doing all this crazy, like using the shoppers. It was like gorilla doing dance numbers at Ikea and completely insane and you know in 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 fact like i uh, you know there were jokes that had not made it into the uh, pilot you know when i did the pilot that i put in the you know that i put in the in the show and then it really it just weirdly took off i i mean there were no celebrities in fact it's funny there was nothing a backlash.
0: nothing weirdly takes yes. off america speaks they either like it or they don't
3: well it really took off on the internet and in fact the only thing that was funny about it was there was a backlash of like celebrities are ruining the internet (laughs) that was the only we want to just see cats um (laughs) but the show really took off and then ikea doubled the budget and the next year again what was amazing about it was did you
0: get free ikea furniture
3: no everybody asked me that i wish i did i used to joke you didn't put that, that I, in the contract i used to joke that i got ikea furniture which i immediately sold on craigslist because <laughs> it was a great way to meet college guys but uh <laughs> Uh, no, I never got anything free, uh, but they, so we did the, and the second year really galvanized because of working with all the people from Ikea, a very strange thing started to happen. I started to fall in love with a work environment and I started to see this metaphor that I was putting myself together, that I, Ileana Douglas, with all these crazy career things, this and that, had found uh, a place, a little haven in which I was going to be able to learn how to write and direct and be a producer and not get any notes. And I, I, I that's what I needed because the the experience, jumping out of the gate and having my first show, being inundated with notes to the point that I was like, I don't think I can do this. This is like, come up with 10 jokes about ice cream, you know, like, the first one was the funniest joke, like, because you need something to say. Like, I didn't I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, you know, I'd gone through years of like working with, you know, people like Marty and we're all doing. And then suddenly I was in a, I would be in a meeting and the executive, you know, we were talking to someone and they left the room and he leaned over to me in a room full people. He said, you know, you come off as arrogant. You know that, right? And it was like he said it in front of all the people that I was working with. And I was just like, I need to go home now. Like, I just – this is such a difficult office politics situation. It has nothing to do with, like – we're just talking about what's funny or not funny or whatever. And that was kind of spirit-breaking. So the IKEA doing the second show and the third show, I just – because we were doing really well – we were doing really well at IKEA. My executive there, whose name was uh, Magnus Gustafsson, I mean, again, I'm I am blessed that he he did not interfere with the show. I mean, by the third season, we had like cross dressing Craig Bierko as the third Bateman, the untalented one, <laughs> kidnapping Justine and going on in <laughs> her place. I was like, what does this have to do with the furniture? But you know, IKEA was so they just, they never gave me notes. They just let me exercise all my demons. And I, and in four years, by the time we did the fourth year, this, which was called This Side Up, my character, you know, Tom Arnold stages an intervention to get me to go out of Ikea because I realized it had become such a safe place for me that I was like, I have to start doing movies now and books, but it felt so good just to... You know, I just read Patton Oswalt's book, and I really loved it. Uh, and he talks about a period in his life about being a stand-up at Largo, and he didn't want to be do a stand-up anymore.
0: Largo is a small, small space uh, on Fairfax in Hollywood across from uh, Cantor's, a famous delicatessen. Yeah, and there was— And now they moved it, I believe, to a nicer yeah. place. Yeah, so.
3: and it's still—and it's never quite the same as it was. Yeah, not the same. You know, you come in at 10 o'clock at night, and you see somebody like, you know, Paul Tompkins, or Drew Carey or Greg Proops or Patton just kill but it was like this small little elitist group and he was talking about in the book how it became very safe and you know you didn't want to go to the comedy store cuz that felt like selling out and after 4 years of working with the IKEA show and I was getting like pretty substantial budgets i was like i could i'll just be miss ikea girl <laughs> you know and then but people were saying to me you got to write like movies now and books and do. And I realized like that after for four years that they had given me all the tools as a writer, a director, producer, we were a union show. We did a lot of stuff. We, you know, we worked with people that it would be that I was not, I would not be living up to my full potential, that it was time to go back into the arena of, you know, of doing other, of doing other things, which I have, but I definitely miss, The ability to just write a script and send it to actors that you love you know like roger bart keanu reeves and just have them love your material and do your material which is again is a really you know nice thing and learn on your own what is funny and what's not funny and i I learned on my own to be a writer i i without criticism And that's good because now I can take criticism. But at the time, I just had to learn how to be, you know, a good writer and write plots and stuff.
0: Fantastic. Now, uh, you're going to kill me. For the first time in my life, I've cried three times in this podcast. You're going to cry again? And for the first time in 86 episodes, I'm going to ask you if you would mind if I went to the bathroom.
3: Go to the bathroom.
0: And then we'll wrap up.
3: Do I I talk while you're gone? You can do anything you want. I won't.
0: You can talk about me behind my back.
3: I won't. Barry. I wondered if you'd bring up that horrible. No, <laughs> I feel like we've been talking forever.
2: Yeah, right. We I could set it down a little bit, but it feels yeah, it's like okay.
3: you've been. Can... I know. I hope some of it's interesting. Oh, <laughs> that's all. Yeah, definitely.
2: How's it going, man? Oh, how's it going? It's going. You know, these are the hard jobs. These are both the hard Awesome. All the information on you yep. take them away from me. The albatross that I've been carrying around <laughs> for a year and a half. Good. Uh, and which one does the podcast get offloaded on to typically? One of them's full, so one of them has a terabyte of information. The other one, it's not full. I will dump before I leave. You go there. Okay. that will be all yours. You had mentioned that, that you thought there was one over by Barry's desk. because I, I picked them up. That's one of them. They're all in there, yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. How's, it, how's the podcast <laughs> going? Good? Yeah. All right, yeah. sweet. Yeah. Almost done. I'd have a suit on, but I have a casting, so yeah. I get cast stone Stoner a lot. Oh, <laughs> <But at least laughs> the role you were born to play. Right, but I don't even smoke, so it's a one. How'd it go? So I, it was the callback. So I go in mm-hmm. and do the same thing I was doing, and they're like, "All right, don't do that." <laughs> I'm like, "All right," and they're like, "Do it totally different." And I'm like, "Okay." So I did it totally different. That was funny. Okay.
0: This is Max, one of my producers here. Hi there. How's it going? Uh, Good. I'm sorry. This is so long. I can't believe how long we've been here. This is amazing. I'm so sorry. We're
4: just beginning. All
0: right. I promise I'll I'll try to wrap up here. All right. Wait, take- no, that's okay. Take your sip. Do whatever. You Are you gonna say.
3: come Sunday to watch Pittsburgh? I
0: would. I would love to do that. I feel guilty when I go to Phil's house more than I should. I don't know if that's like a. Really? But then he invites me, so I guess I'm in. I guess he. I should go. Go.
3: I'm coming. I have to go. Of course,
0: you're on the panel. Well, with Jeff, so funny. I met Jeff doing Gary Chandler just the relationships are incredible okay yes so here we're gonna go to uh we you know we've been here a long time so we'll do a little six degrees of separation sort of like a little wrap-up thing a little night and day thing a little it's kind of like I don't know how to say it but like I'm gonna mention a name of somebody and I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind it could be a little tiny story could be two words could be one word could be make me cry story something (laughs) okay yes Ethan Hawke
3: Oh, my goodness. Well, I write him uh, I have to do it briefly. Uh, just uh, talk about authentic. He Ethan is the person that I have always wanted to be. I just have so much admiration for him. I write about him in the book extensively. He t- totally changed my life in terms of, you know, I was I signed on to do this movie. And it was a wonderful movie, and had a great experience, and it was action, and we were on it for four months. But um, spending time with Ethan, I realized that I was already going into a path of just, you know, it was so exciting to be an actress and to be able to pay the rent that I was like, I, I that's all I wanted to do. I mean, I had no aspirations. All my aspirations starting out of, like, stand-up, sketch comedy, just was like... Can, you know, I was like, I'm going to be a movie star. Screw this. And then being on Alive and being with Ethan and. Tell us the movie. Uh, alive. Always oh, Alive. I'm sorry. Yeah. His love of music. And I. Uh, and we were talking about movies and Cassavetes, and it really reignited in me this idea of wanting to be a filmmaker. I mean, we, we had these, you know, late night talks about films and, and, uh, and, you know, I. I just always thought that he has stayed true to his ideals in a business that's very difficult to do that. You know, he's done Broadway and he's um, done films of great merit and has had longevity. And um, I just in- admire him. And he, he was really, uh, really inspirational for me.
0: Juliet Lewis.
3: Oh, Juliet Lewis from Cape Fear?
0: Yes. Because I ask you because. You were a 15-year-old going through crazy times, and now here you're on the set with a 15-year-old who's experiencing a crazy, crazy. What
3: existence. I remember about Juliet was seeing her with her that, with her unknown then-boyfriend, Brad Pitt, on the set of Cape Fear. And she was like, no, 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 she was like savvy because she was, was like a child actress, she was like, "They better get us per diem," and they, you know, she <laughs> was like, "No, she was an old pro." I was so
0: she channeled Shelley Winters through her too.
3: Yes, possibly. No, I was intimidated. I was like, "I'm always." I'm you like, were
0: intimidated what? by her
3: totally because I thought I should be more like that. I'm like, "I'm, I'm thinking about like, like being a good actor." Who cares? It's like my agent's got me booked on this and that, and she was like. She had it going on, like agents, this and that. I never had an agent or anything. I'm such a half-assed career. But she was really like. She You've was, had was agents, a, stop it. I have, yeah. Or they've died or <laughs> hung themselves.
0: In the woods. Yeah. Uh, Drew Carey.
3: Oh, my God, Drew. I adore Drew. What a what a dear person. Drew Carey, he, the first man I kissed post uh, getting divorce. I was doing the Drew Carey show and I was cast as his girlfriend and I was such a huge fan of that show. I think it was a very underrated show. I lo- I love the Drew Carey show and I used to see Drew at Largo. Big fan of his and then um I got cast on the show and uh, I totally had a crush on him cuz he was he's just adorable, you know, not as a not really thinking anything of it but I we were doing we had all these scenes we had this scene where we were in a sleeping bag it was so stupid like showbiz we're supposedly we're out in the woods bringing back to the woods (laughs) where supposedly the joke is is that these raccoons are watching us you know make love in a soup in a sleeping bag and it was not an easy thing to do but anyway I said to him no this is kind of exciting for me because I'm like you're gonna be like literally. You're gonna be like the first man that I get to kiss, post divorce. And then we had a scene, and where he was supposed to kiss me, and right before the take, and he said, uh, "Can I go for it?" I was like, "Go for it." <laughs> <laughs> so he came, he came back in, and I think that I had to put a beer down, a beer down, and, and he just, you know, bent me over, kissed me. The audience went crazy. And I always so I'm always thinking I literally and then I was supposed to talk and I was like, I I don't know (laughs) know what I'm going to say now. Stop it. And The audience went crazy and it was fun. I love doing that show. He was it was really, really great. It was a great experience. Terrifying because we would do the show. And then again, another feeling about a comic. We would do the written show. And then at midnight, you know, the writers would come with lines on napkins. Okay, now you're going to say this. Now say this. Now say this. You know, I was like, I, you didn't even know what was happening, but it was it was fun.
0: Amy Poehler.
3: Oh, my God, Amy. Well, I just read her books. Great book. Um, you know, again, a very authentic person a, who I always, of course, admired from SNL. And she produced the Welcome to Sweden, which I'm on. So I'd never met her.
0: IKEA Sweden.
3: IKEA Sweden, which I got because... We needed, I had a Swedish agent getting me Swedish actors when we did ETA. And I said, hey, if anything ever comes up, and then sure enough, Greg Poehler, you know, through that, I'm on the show and I got to meet Amy in um, in uh, uh, Sweden. And so we got to hang out a bit. And I just think it's, again, it's admirable that her, you know, her producing uh, these shows, it, it, you know, they're not like cookie cutter shows this isn't the easiest show in the world to come on board and go i'm gonna it. you know i'm gonna yeah that's what i'm gonna i'm gonna put my name you know it could have failed and so i admire that greatly that she um um took a hold of it and i and also parks and rec has really developed into i think you know a really interesting show but i think she's just beginning and i admire her greatly
0: richard dreyfus
3: Richard Dreyfuss is, again, a just my goodness. He is the person that when I was growing up, I most pretended to be because I I I saw Jaws. And I, I, I just, I to me, he was like a big kid. And I wanted to be, it was like, I wanted Richard Dreyfuss to be either my friend, like my best friend, or I wanted to be Richard Dreyfuss because he seemed so confident. So when in doubt, when I was in acting school, I would always pretend to be him. And then um and then I got cast in a movie with him and which was literally almost impossible because it was such a serious film and I was so miscast. What was the name of that? It was called Lansky and mm-hmm. I played Mrs. Meyer Lansky. And I the the director of the film kept saying to me, You sound like Barbara Streisand. I was like, I well, I'm, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm Italian. I'm <laughs> not but anyway I did act with Richard Dreyfus and I kept getting laughing fits and I said he he's very funny. I can't, I can't help it. I'm sorry, but we eventually became friends, and I brought him into the Turner Classic Movie Fold, and so I've interviewed him many times. And I again, he's just a, a person with an amazing uh, career, and st- who started out with smaller parts, did episodic television, Gunsmoke, The Big Valley, and has a career. And again, it's just someone whose career I admire tremendously.
0: Marlon Brando.
3: Well, Marlon Brando is in the, I'm, it's, it's, we've, you know, we've run out of time, Barry. He's in the book, but uh, Marlon Brando definitely changed my life. He impacted my life. Um, He he called me a tuning fork and (laughs) you'll have to uh, see what that means in the book. But again, I think he identified something in me, which has happened to me my whole life, where I can't identify w- what it is, but someone comes along, and says you're a tuning fork, and it will take me years to sort of figure out what something like that means. But I, he's a mystic. Marlon Brando is truly a mystic, and you shake. You know, there, I, I, there, there hasn't been anybody except for maybe George Harrison, but Marlon Brando especially, where it's like it just feels like an earthquake is happening when you when you meet him.
0: A few more here, Liza Minnelli.
3: Well, Liza Minnelli was my my whole, you know, reason for wanting to get into show business. She was like, I looked at her as a kid. I was like, there was a period of time where she was dating Peter Sellers, another genius, Peter Sellers, and I was like, yeah, that is. I mean, with the hair and the body and dancing in Studio Fifty Four and dating Martin Scorsese and you know, that to me. Uh, friends with Halston like I you know that and then she would do all that and then get on stage and have this just amazing voice and I still think Cabaret and years later I get to meet her again through Turner Classic Movies and tell her that but you know Cabaret was again a re uh, that film was one of the reasons i wanted to be in show business that is just an incredible film and a performance
0: i can't stop myself keep going keep going stop myself uh roddy mcdowell
3: ah well uncle roddy as i used to call him was uh i miss him and i think of him every day he dramatically changed my life because he was the person who told me that i needed to start keeping journals He's, so he gave me my first journal.
0: Talk to our audience about what that means to keep a journal. I mean, in terms of this profession.
3: I If I didn't keep a journal, uh, in terms of writing down the experiences that I had, uh, when I wrote my book, I went back again and again to my journal for actual stories, actual quotes, things that people really said. You know, you're fr- you're, things change so dramatically you know, when you, so you can actually reference films that you were in. I, part of the reason I did it was, you know, it was to look, it was so important for me to document um, being in movies because I thought it was such a privilege and I didn't want to forget it. It was like, if I'm going to meet Robert Mitchum, yeah, I'm going to have him sign something so I can like look at this forever and ever and and remember that day, and call back, you know, call call back those days. And I think there's something more uh, contemplative about writing than than maybe typing, you know. But I still keep journals to this day. I'm, I'm uh, I mean, I I write every every morning. I try to document just one thing that a person says, you know. Like we were we were talking about George Lopez, and we were on the set, and I said what's the best thing that a comedian could ever hear? Like if you, you know, what's the compliment? Because I told him, I, I sort of saw the show and I was very, I said, I've seen many comedians. I said, I was very impressed with you. I said, but I feel ignorant. Like when you're looking at artwork and you don't know what to say to the artist, you're like, I like it. It moves me. And I said, what's the, Best thing I could say to a comedian. And he got very serious and he goes, you're a funny motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like one of those moments that I was like, to go home, I I mean, I remember that story because it was a week ago, but to go home and write it down, we were standing in the kitchen of the Mirage Hotel. You know, like that gives you context and the way his face looked when he said it and that's why I think it's important to keep a journal if you want to be a writer.
0: Kelsey Grammer.
3: Uh, Kelsey Grammer was a was a boy. You pulled that. That was again just like a funny, just in the heyday of wanting to experience everything. I got asked to be uh, on Frasier, and it was just you know just a great just a great experience in and out. I was like I just I did all of those. I did all of those shows, worked with all the greats. Judd Apatow. Well, Judd Apatow, as we were saying before, he, he did, that uh, was his first directing, me and Gary Shandling in bed. And he had worked with Ben Stiller. They had done like a riff on Cape Fear. And I remember they sent it to Marty, you know, in a little VHS. And... Uh, when I met him, I said, you know, Marty saw it. I was where he saw it. He liked it. He was like, I'm talking to like Ily- I she What? Marty Scorsese <laughs> saw that? And I said, yeah, we watched it. We're, better he will put in a little tape, you know, Judd Apatow watched it. And so then we, um uh, and that was, and then we did the, you know, and then we did the show together. And look at it. What happened to him? Where, where is he now?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Another guy back then, John Stewart.
3: Oh, John Stewart, I am so, you know, that's interesting and complex because he used to guest host for Tom Snyder. And when I and I did that show a few times and he would guest host and he was so such an amazing interviewer. And again, so much more depth at the time. He had been in a couple of movies that hadn't done very well. And I and as satirized on Larry Sanders was sort of like the next big thing. And then it was kind of like, ah, it's not going to happen for you. You're over. And so he you know, he was on writing assignment. Larry Sanders, just you know, just a funny, good, good guy, and so I think again he's one of those people that gives you hope because it's like you th- you think like wow this is, I mean again I don't think anybody, first of all expected the show to do well, then it becomes like a cultural icon, literally changing comedy forever you know um that's pretty you know that's pretty impressive
0: absolutely sarah jessica parker
3: sarah jessica parker sadly i have i have never i i developed a script with um <laughs> With the writer, and they came, They, I, I was very excited, and they said, "We, you know, uh, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is we've signed Sarah Jessica Parker. The bad news is you're fired." <laughs> and they fired me. It was I develop the script, this great part for myself and Matt Dillon. I was developing it for me and Matt Dillon, and they it was ended up being Sarah Jessica Parker, and um, Harry Gonick, Jr. And I never, the only time I have ever met Sarah Jessica Parker was once, before this happened, backstage at Conan O'Brien. And I I wish her well. And, you know, uh, I didn't get to meet her on the set. Sadly, I was not invited (laughs) to the the Uh, set.
0: Joe Pesci.
3: Oh, just a doll. I mean, again, just a very... uh, you know, so so important to Goodfellas, and I just again just a very interesting uh, you know dynamic person. It's a shame he's not working anymore because I I think of him as you know in Raging Bull, of course, and Goodfellas, Casino, and his presence is. I feel as if his presence is is lacking in films. He was very and, and also he um, he taught me to always put butter in my tomato sauce. He's a very good cook and a good singer. All good right. Singer. God, J- this is fun. I want to do we do a 100 more of these.
0: Jay Moore.
3: Well, Jay, of course, is just a doll. That was love at first sight. We we met on Picture Perfect, which was a kind of a complicated set and uh and we sort of bonded on that movie. Uh and, uh, so years later when we got to meet, you know, on, on action, I think that it was, um, you know, we were all set to really, I just thought we were, it was really going to be some, you know, rock and roll because, you know, he was dark, obviously he's a comedian and there, that show was really, had we gone into the next season, I really think it could have been amazing and dark and funny and crazy and, again, somebody who's so much more talented than I think than than the world knows, you know, and um, that right thing will come along for him if he wants it. Not that it's important to be successful, but I think that that right thing will come along, you know, for him. I will never forget when Glenn Gordon Caron on Picture Perfect, he saw Jerry Maguire before he came out. And he was so impressed with Jay Moore based on seeing Jerry Maguire. And and the movie hadn't even come out yet. You know, and and he was like just a force of nature. And he was, you know, and he was. So that's Jay. Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. I haven't, you know, since Picture Perfect. What's happened to her? Now, another person that, you know, was just at the height of her career and uh, really with somebody that wanted to be successful and has remained successful. And I admire that about people that, you know, that want to be successful. And she's in Office Space, which may be still my favorite Jennifer Aniston performance, I think.
0: Robert De Niro.
3: Well, you know, what can you say? He's I I believe he is the greatest living actor that we have. I, I just, that's my personal feeling and I there's somebody I think is number two but I don't want to say it but in the same zone but I believe that Robert De Niro is still he's it for me I I, I think I personally think
0: Martin Scorsese let me let me no. I <laughs> want to say this I want to say this the right way because I always I, hack. Hack. I want to say this the right way because I always mispronounce his name Martin Scorsese
3: Scorsese yes get it right Thank you. Get it right. Um, well, again, it's, we'd say this, you know, we bandy about, but he's, uh, you know, a genius and a film historian and someone that obviously will be, you know, remembered uh, for his films and has, you know, gotten, in, uh, you know, will be a cultural uh, touchstone and reference for films, for, you know, forever.
0: Do you still talk?
3: Uh, through films, through fi- through films, yes. <laughs> through films, yes. <laughs> through films, we're not. I, I. It's not. It's not that we're not talking. It's not like a showbiz. I just think that our paths have not crossed. But I. I. I believe and I hope that uh, you know that we would be working together again on some project. We both work. Uh, f- do things for Turner Classic Movies, so I can imagine that we'll hopefully b- maybe be doing something with film restoration or something like that
0: your biggest disappointment that you turned into something positive in show business
3: jeez that's a tough one let me think about that probably you know i've definitely had i i i mean i go back to i've definitely been fired you know and i think that the biggest it's just a general i can't say one thing so
0: have i been fired too
3: Yeah. yeah is that i don't uh, I don't take it personally or hold a grudge about it. I try to be very much like that. I know that our paths will, you know, will meet again. Um, oh, okay. I thought of my biggest disappointment that I turned into a positive. I was fired. I was fired from a, uh, there was a play that I actually developed. I won't say the name of it, but I developed the play in, uh, out, out of state when I had done Cape Fear and, uh when and we took it on the road, went to Baltimore and then we went to Washington. And then the play got bought by the Manhattan Theater Club, which was like a big deal. And as we were coming in New York, they fired me. They got rid of me. And then they got somebody else and it didn't work out. And they asked me to like come back with like no notice to come back into the play and all my, all my agents and everybody, nobody wanted me to do it. They were like, screw them, let them fall on their face. And I said, "No, nah, I'm not, you know, the, the director called me and he said, what can I say? And we made a mistake. And, and so I went back in to do the play, you know, to be a hero. I just thought, I'm going to do this. This will be, this will be interesting. And I came, you know, I came back in and, and, uh, It was very, it was like being dead. It was like dead man walking. I'm back. And, um, you know, I wasn't a jerk about it or anything. It was like, I just, I came back in and I thought, well, this is going to, this will be a challenge. This will be, because they were, they were dead. They had put somebody in the role and they, you know, so they were freaking out. So I just thought, you know, if I can go in and do this and be a hero, um, you know they'll they'll appreciate it and they'll they'll be uh you know I'll be a professional and be a trooper so i think that i always try to that's my general my general rule
0: your proudest moment in show business
3: interviewing jerry lewis truly that was truly my proudest moment i was backstage and we'd worked together and i'd seen his act many times and i asked him if i could set him up on a joke and he said, what, what would you say? And I said, well, I I know you've got the parrot joke. I said, what if I say something like, you know, and we were back. And I was that was literally my proudest moment. I could cry just thinking about it that 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 somebody like Jerry Lewis was going to let me be his straight man setting up a joke, which I could bungle, you know, I could bungle it Um in front of, and at the El Capitan before the Nutty Professor. And he's and and when we were backstage, he was coaching me. And he was like, how are you going to say it? And I said, well, I'll say something like, and he was like, no, don't say that part, say that part. And that was literally like, and then somebody came in and took our picture. And that is like, that picture's in my my book. Because that to me is like, you know, you love comedians, I love comedians. To have a comedian trust you to not screw up their act
0: to have a genius trust you
3: that's true too was uh truly my that for me truly my proudest moment absolutely without a doubt.
0: all right, last question. what advice do you have for the young artist who's uh growing up as a dirty hippie somewhere in the world or or any other kind of lifestyle, and they just are hoping to figure out a way to navigate through this crazy career and get to the point where you are as not only a respected actress, writer, director, producer. What do they have to do to to get to that level?
3: Well, my practical advice, which I always tell everybody, is work for free or for almost nothing. I never worked as a waitress. Oh, you know, when I went to New York, nobody you know, everybody was working as a waitress and they never had time to audition. And I, you know, I worked for a film publicist. I made like no money. I got like, you know, $50 a day, I think. And I would work maybe 12 hours a day. And I would would ask all the time, is there anything else you need me to do? Would you like me to do this? And the interesting thing is, it's like people, you know, when you work for free, people always accept that. You know they and and oftentimes people come to work for me and assi- as an assistant and they're like, well, I need twenty dollars because my boyfriend and the, and I'm like, I don't want to hear about your personal life, okay? Like, like you know, it's so I'm so old school in that way that you know uh, when I had my with the boss Peggy Siegel, I you know I knew how overwhelmed they were and I said. If you like, I could call some of the actors and just literally ask them questions for the press kit, and maybe I'll get some interesting answers out of it. Maybe I won't. But they would look at me, and they'd go, you want to do that? And I said, yeah, I'll I'll do that. So I would come up with jobs that people would look at it, and they'd go, you know, this is actually – pretty good. I didn't know Swoozy Kurtz grew up next to Bob Hope. How did you find that out? You know, so I would find jobs like that to do. And so I always say, like, to work for free, be an intern or something around people is number one. And then number two is, and it sounds, you know, it's easy, but it's always to have goals. And once you reach those goals, to have new goals, because you know, like being famous is not a goal. I I think, you know, anybody can be famous. It's not, you know, if you really want to be famous, maybe that is your goal, but being, you know, having a goal is really, I think is really, really important. Um, and whatever that is. And then once you, once you reach those goals, you're like, ah, crap, what am I going to do now? You know? And, uh, I think, I mean, do you have goals? Do you? Have...
0: Yes, I do. I have yeah. them every day because I always say to myself that it's all going to go away tomorrow if I don't work harder, work smarter, mm-hmm. work longer hours and try to figure out how to get to the next level. It's hard because when you're a when you're manager, sometimes you your main thing is you have goals for your artist that you work with. That's right. the main thing because they have their bucket list mm-hmm. and you your only job is to check off the things on their bucket list Mm -hmm. and as you're doing that you realize those are some of the things on your bucket list Mm -hmm. but to be able to sit across from you I mean I just think to myself you have worked with more geniuses (laughs) than I can even think of anybody else that I've talked to and Mm -hmm. I say to myself (sighs) there's a reason why geniuses are attracted to Ileana Douglas. Hmm. And it has to be because within you, they see a genius looking back at them.
3: Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know that. I've, I've got a long time. I've got to live up to some, you know, I got to live up to my potential. I haven't, you know, scratched the surface of that. I admire people that you know like we were talking about John Stewart, Jed Apatow, all these people that I admire, you know, they've done Albert Brooks, Elaine May, Mike Dinkels, you know, they've done so many things and um, and I think that it, I would like to contribute in some way to my you know, to my craft whether it's talking about films or film history or even in this like storytelling, you know, it's very important to remember people's names and Talk about film history and all the people that were involved and, you know, we're forgetting all these people and they're, you know, even when we're talking about like, you know, Mike Ovitz, it's like, yeah, he created a little thing. It's called Creative Artists Agency, you know. Well,
0: I can guarantee you after this podcast is over, our audience is always going to remember your name. (laughs) This has been so amazing. This has been one of the most unique interviews I've ever done in my entire life. Interesting. And I I loved it. And I know people are thinking of this as like war and peace, this podcast, but it's so seamless talking to you. It's so beautiful, and I thank you so much for doing this. I thank you. Well, you've been listening to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Please buy when it comes out. Ileana douglas's book i blame dennis hopper a life inside and outside movies yes and check her out on turner classic movies as well she's an amazing actress an amazing person and you will be better off looking at her work and downloading her work as always barry katz industry standard if you like the show please tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends
1: They say it's the glory i screaming day. put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, because you're going for Life is for the dreamer. They have out to gate It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune egg.